leaders of the past have done atrocities to mankind. In the 40s, there was a deal exchanged. We would have been on the relay already. They're trying to get us on the relay, where everything you do is on the internet, where they can erase you in an instant, where they can deplatform you in an instant, where they can debank you in an instant, and they can delete your very existence. As someone who has had her identity deleted and retroactively manufactured, I say this to you. You can either believe me or you don't. But the fact is, this is the reality. Last night at about 2 a.m., I posted a voice um, tweet that was discussing the happenings in Israel and Palestine uh, from my sources from Jordan. Um, But to more explain the situation, it was instantly deleted. We are being censored because we are not allowed to know. Might I please make one request from everyone looking at this war? Please go back and look at how we created North Korea. In 1945, we took up the Korean Peninsula. We put two junior lieutenant <laughs> lieutenants and they drew a line and we decided to make a border. It's a real estate deal. That's all. And the terrorists are just to excuse the aggression. It's really bad. And yes, there's a lot of Hamas there. But that's because those are the people they place there. The mercenaries. They place them there in order to excuse the aggression because no one in today in 2023 will honor a contract from the 40s that didn't take into account the Palestinians nor the Arab nations. This is exactly what you are observing. Borders are drawn and redrawn all the time through wars. Wars make money and wars make us weak. We must all stop playing the game, this game of war. Do not pick a side, pick the side of humanity and say enough, no more death. Those that wanted all the refugees to come through the border, think of it this way. They're gonna drag us into this war by creating a terrorist attack using those migrants that they hustled in through the Southern border with your bleeding hearts. Our very own selected individuals, both Democrat and Republican, have been working against us. The military-industrial complex makes too much money. And the only way to cull the population is through spread of disease and war. They become rich and we become less. It's about time that we stop playing these games and we hold them accountable, both on the left and the right. We've been saying this for a long time, but people have been so self-centered. No one's really paying attention to what's really happening. We've been distracted with drag queen nights and LGBTQ months and Juneteenths and George Floyd, who was a rapist yet killed, right? So we have been so distracted that they've been orchestrating this war with PMCs, private military companies. And here we are. They're going to drag us into this war because they're going to make sure there's blood spilt on our soil so that people say, we want blood back. Do not bloodlust, pray. God will intervene, he always does. And don't forget the Speaker of the House race. See, right now everyone's supporting Jim Jordan. Nobody likes Jim Jordan, but he's the best they got. Well, the Democrats are gonna bring Gavin Newsom and watch them all jump on that train. The only way we can mitigate Gavin Newsom and a Michelle Obama so Michelle Obama can continue Barack Obama's legacy is if we bring in Alveda King. 
I'd love to see the Democrats trash Martin Luther King Jr.'s niece. She's more than capable. Sound is a centrist. And we need more of that. People that meet people in the middle. God forgive us. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you a message of hope, not fear. A message that I hope will galvanize us all into much needed action. The problem is quite simple. Anarchy and chaos prevails in Washington, D.C. because the federal government has seized powers to which it is not entitled to and is passing masses of laws that are 100% unconstitutional. And when you get men setting themselves up as greater than the Constitution of the United States, you get anarchy and eventually tyranny. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the media's spin and plot. I know of no reason the election season should ever be forgot. Glowless scheming, the people were dreaming of truth and a fair say. But twists and turns as history burns, drowned voices that day. So if ever you ponder while we all wonder about that November lore, Remember the time, the near-perfect crime, and always question more. Trigger trees. Pull that up there. Babylon is coming back to life with its famed Ish Ishtar Gate. We'll explain what that means. Ishtar Gate to be restored by this summer. Subtitled a new world, a new world monuments fund project in conjunction with the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. Look at that. Aims to repair Iraqi culture heritage as part of the future of Babylon project. The EU has already built a Tower of Babel, a statue of a woman riding the beast, and Baal worship is taking place in England. Symbolism of mystery Babylon is everywhere in Europe and in the U.S. It's happening right before our eyes. The only reason a Christian could miss this symbolism is if they haven't seen these things or, more likely, if they don't know their Bible. So in this video, we're going to do both things. We're going to show you the symbols and we're going to explain the verses that explain the symbols. Why is this important? Well, because Mystery Babylon is an essential element of the end times. Revelation devotes two whole chapters to it, chapters 17 and 18, and because it is a great murderer of Christians in the end times. Revelation 17:6 says it is drunk on the blood of the saints. Maybe it murders nearly as many, who knows, maybe even more than the beast. And Babylon comes before the beast. It rides or controls the beast until the beast finally burns Babylon with fire. Today, we're going to pack all of this in this super important video. We're going to start with some of the obvious in-your-face symbols that are popping up in Europe. Symbols so incredible, they're hard to believe. We're going to look at a symbol that you probably saw in the last week or two at the Commonwealth Games opening ceremony where dancers were apparently worshipping a huge mechanical bull. 
Look at this video clip. Look at how incredibly pagan it looks. It's very obvious that the dancers are pretending to worship the bull. Now, all the videos and articles I read on this said it was Baal worship because Baal is the bull. And, you know, that's absolutely correct. Baal is pictured by a bull. But that is not the only meaning of the symbol. It is a direct reference to Mystery Babylon and the woman riding the beast. Let me explain. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Revelation 17.3 So as you watch the video, you didn't see the woman riding the beast. At least most didn't in the video versions that were sent out. However, that is exactly what happened. Thoughts do show this. Notice how the woman approaches the beast. Then, as in this shot, she ends up riding the beast. What could be more indicative of Mystery Babylon than a woman riding the beast? But why is this being used at Great Britain's Commonwealth Games with, you know, 72 nations present? Well, it is symbolic of the Greek myth, the rape of Europa. Europa is where Europe gets its name, after all. Now, in this myth, Zeus, the king of the Greek gods, spied a young woman on a beach in the Middle East and transformed himself into a bull with long curved horns in the shape of a crescent moon. That's important. We'll get back to that in a little bit. Zeus is the Greek name for the Middle Eastern god Baal. The Sumerian god Enlil, the Egyptian god Ra, all of them are the same. And all of them are Satan, who was a cherubim, as per Ezekiel 28. We did this former video in this exact topic. Cherubim have four faces, lion, eagle, man, and bull. So it's not at all surprising that these gods we just mentioned sometimes appear as a lion, or as an eagle, or a bull, or a dragon, or even a man. So in this myth, the bull is Satan in disguise. The woman climbs on his back, and he carries her into the Mediterranean and abuses her. Not a very nice story to be glorified in the opening ceremonies of an international sporting event. But this myth is glorified all over Europe today in statues, paintings, currency, bills, coins. In front of another European building, the Council of Europe building in Brussels, the EU has this statue of a woman riding the beast. Very direct symbolism. The woman, as we said, is Europa and the beast is Zeus or Satan from the ancient Greek legend. Another sign that Europe considers itself already to be Mystery Babylon, the woman who rides the beast from Revelation. Let's look at that passage in the Bible. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns, and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. Revelation 17, 3-5. So the woman is the modern Babylon, although it is a mystery. And the original Babel was the mother of all subsequent abominations on the earth. The reason it has given birth to other Babylons is Babylon has moved. In Zechariah, we see this woman moving. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It is a basket that is going forth. He also said, This is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up. And this is a woman sitting inside the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. Then I raised my eyes and looked. And there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings, like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up 
the basket between the earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who was talking to me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me to build a house for it in the land of Shinar. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. What is the base? It is the base that still remains there of the Tower of Babel. How many times has Babylon moved? We are told the beast that it rides has seven heads. So it has been based in seven different places where the seven heads were. And there's an eighth head coming, so it will likely be based in eight places. Another aspect of the Commonwealth Games that almost no one reported on is that they had a Tower of Babel as well, another Mystery Babylon link. In fact, the announcer called the tower the Tower of Babel. And if you look at a comparison between the Commonwealth Tower and artwork of the Tower of Babel, notice the arches on both and the levels on both. There is absolutely no doubt this was meant to look like the Tower of Babel. The European Union Parliament building also looks like the Tower of Babel. In fact, they acknowledge architecturally it was based on the Tower of Babel. The slogan of the entire EU is many tongues, one voice. You know, the opposite of what happened at the Tower of Babel, where they had one voice initially and then were split into many tongues. And the spokesperson has said that they chose the Tower of Babel because it represents one world government and a rejection of God, both things which the EU supports. The USA also has its own Tower of Babel, the One World Trade Center, stressing the one world aspect as in one world government. The blatant nature of this symbolism is just incredible to me. For instance, let's go back to the Commonwealth Games for a second because that opening ceremony was so satanic and so intentional. It started with a video of these falling stars. Yes, falling stars. Like in Revelation 12 where the dragon Satan cast a third of the stars down with his tail. So these stars represent fallen angels cast down with Satan. Now look at this. The girl who will eventually ride the bull is praying to and worshiping a crystal, which is a part of one of these stars, a piece of a fallen angel. You just can't make this stuff up. It's so satanic, so intentional. But let's get back to the symbolism of the bull with the crescent moon horns. We promised we'd talk about that. Well, it's Baal, the bull, who led the Israelites astray. Baal, the moon god, whose symbol was the crescent moon, and another, the bull, the same god who led Muhammad astray, and is currently called Allah, the god of Islam today. So, is Islam planning on raping Europe? They have already infiltrated Europe with lots of immigrants. Islam is the largest and most active religion in Europe, other than atheism. In Revelation 17, 16, the beast is eventually going to burn the woman with fire. This is a very likely end to this symbolic story. In the USA, you are probably familiar with the famous charging bull statue on Wall Street. But did you ever see the fearless girl statue that's near it? She hasn't climbed on the bull just yet, but the symbolism of the bull and the girl who rides the beast is very clear. There are more symbols of Babylon in Europe. The second is the famed Ishtar Gate with its winged lions and snake dragons that was physically taken from Babylon to Berlin, Germany. It's actually more than a symbol, it's the real gate. Another incredible artifact, the throne of Satan, was moved to Berlin from Pergamum, Turkey, immediately prior to World War I. This throne is mentioned in Revelation 2 in the letter to Pergamum. Adolf Hitler was so impressed by this throne, he had a copy built. It was from this copy that he ordered the Holocaust to begin. In 2008, U.S. presidential candidate Obama constructed a similar edifice on which he accepted his party's nomination. This links the USA to this symbol as well. 
Another symbol of Mystery Babylon is the so-called all-seeing eye or eye of Horus. Anyone who has seen the U.S. $1 bill knows that it is featured prominently on the back of the bill. This symbol of a pyramid with the eye on top is part of the seal of the USA, of the government, which has an eagle in the front and this pyramid and eye in the back. Now, where did this come from? The eye of Horus is said to derive from a conflict between the god Horus and a rival god of his from Egypt known as Set, in which Set tore out Horus's eye. But the eye was subsequently healed and returned to Horus. And Horus then offered the eye to his deceased father, Osiris, who you probably have heard us talk about in other videos. This is the same being as Nimrod in the Bible, and its revitalizing power sustained Osiris in the afterlife. The eye of Horus, then, is a symbol of the one who is in the abyss and will come out of the abyss and return. The beast who was, is not, and will be, in other words, the Antichrist. In the U.S. seal. It's found in the U.S. seal. And at the top of the pyramid, of course, is the eye. And above that is the motto, Anuit Coptis, which is Latin for, it is favorable to our undertakings. Or, he favors our undertakings. Who? The one who has the eye. The spirit of the Antichrist. Below the pyramid, a scroll reads, Novus Ovdo Seclorum, which is Latin for New Order of the Ages, or in other words, the New World Order. The disembodied eye. You know, it just strongly conveys the sense of a prime, authoritarian big brother. In combination with the pyramid beneath it, it suggests an ancient pagan satanic cult associated with Freemasons, New World Order, etc. This is the government of the USA, a government that most don't realize has these connections. A quick glance into the harbor of New York City gives us another symbol of Mystery Babylon, the Statue of Liberty based on the pagan goddess Libertas. This is the same woman in just a different culture and a different name who will later ride the beast. Then, of course, there's the infamous United Nations statue of the winged lion that appeared at the UN building in New York for a period of time last year. So the Western democracies of Europe and America are full of symbols of Mr. Babylon. But why? For one, as an open affront against God himself. And as an encouragement to their leaders who will undertake the audacious overthrow of the world. That will be Mystery Babylon. Another purpose is to show Christians exactly who is who and who Mystery Babylon is. When you see these symbols, that's where Mystery Babylon will be. To me, based on these symbols, that means the UN, America, and Europe are the drivers of Mystery Babylon. To the UN and uh, further evidence that it's a hopelessly corrupt clown operation. When we think about the United Nations, then we think about exactly that. An organization, a political organization, bringing the nations together. And that sounds like uh, something commendable. And the question is, is that all that there is behind it? Do you remember that at the Tower of Babel, God separated the nations? Now, if you look at the headquarters of the United Nations in New York, this is really quite a fascinating building. It is large, and the name United Nations was coined by United States President Franklin D. Roosevelt and was used in the declaration by United Nations of January 1942 during the Second World War when representatives of 26 nations pledged their governments to continue fighting together against what they called the Axis Powers. Interesting name, Axis Powers. Today there's another Axis that is being fought and that is known as the Axis of Evil. Have you heard of that? 
The forerunner of the United Nations was the League of Nations, and this was an organization in similar circumstances during the First World War and established in 1919 under the Treaty of Versailles to promote the international cooperation and to achieve peace and security. This comes straight from the UN webpage, so nothing strange about that. It's just plain history. Some more from that. In 1945, representatives of 50 countries met in San Francisco at the United Nations Conference on International Organizations, and they drew up the United Nations Charter. And those delegates deliberated on the basis of proposals worked out by representatives of China, Soviet Union, United Kingdom, United States, at Dumbarton Oaks, United States, in August, October 1944. It was signed on 26 June 1945. 50 countries, Poland was not represented, and became one of the original 51 member states. So it officially came into existence on the 24th of October 1945, when the charter was ratified by China, France, Soviet Union, United Kingdom, United States, and by a majority of the other signatories, and every 24th of October, they celebrate this founding of the United Nations. Now, let's have a look at this charter of the United Nations. This is a very interesting piece of history. Well, Arthur Balfour, do you remember that name? We've used it before. Who was a member of Hort's Apostles? You remember Hort? This is the professor that uh, helped to produce the Greek text that changed the emphasis of the Bible and removed many of the aspects of Jesus Christ's power and sovereignty from the Word of God. And the Apostles were the secret society that uh, functioned and at that time, and Hort was a member, as well as Arthur Balfour. Hort called this group a senior Apostles Club, as well as president of the Psychic Research Society, Society for Psychic Research, soon became Prime Minister of England, Arthur Balfour, and instrumental in the First League of Nations. So this, president, this uh, Prime Minister was also, of course, active in the writing of the original charter of the League of Nations, much of which formed the basis for the United Nations. He not only headed the Society for Psychic Research, holding seances at his home, but he initiated a group called the Synthetic Society, whose goal was to create a one-world religion. That's a very interesting point of history. And he invited a certain Frederick Mayers of the Society of Psychic Research to join, and together they created the preamble of all religions, and it includes the dogma, departed spirits can communicate. Obviously, if you belong to such a society, then that is part of the situation. So, built in somewhere over there, was the wish to bring all religions together. Now let's have a look at some of the historic figures of the United Nations. Alga Hiss, he became the acting Secretary General of the establishment of the United Nations. The April 16, 1945 issue of Time magazine called him one of the State Department's brighter young men. It was Hiss and Joseph E. Johnson who later became Secretary of the Bilderbergers. So here we have all the secret societies again who wrote much of the United Nations Charter. So very high Freemasons, Bilderbergers, were responsible for this charter. Let me know what they believe. We've already had a lecture on that, and I would prefer people back to that lecture. Patterning it after the Constitution of Russia and the Communist Manifesto. That's very interesting. So the Constitution of the USSR is almost identical to the Constitution of the United Nations, for those who did not know that. And there are all the references. Everything that I say is referenced. I'm just reading. So please, nobody get angry with me. Get angry if you want to with whoever set this thing up. I had nothing to do with it. Winston Churchill, the creation of an authoritative world order is the ultimate aim to watch which we must strive, and the United Nations formed part of that. Charles de Gaulle, who was also instrumental, nations must unite in a world government or perish. So the big figures involved had this philosophy. Then there is a man, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Trigger Lee, the first official UN Secretary General, was a high-ranking member of Norway's Social Democratic Party, which was, by the way, an offshoot of the Third Communist International, and then came a man, Doug Hammarskjöld. And he was the second Secretary General. He was a Swedish Socialist, 
He openly pushed communist policy and then came Yutant, the third secretary general, and he was a Marxist. So here you can see how the philosophy in the beginning was programmed. Now, I would like you to understand that this is not a method to go anti-capitalist because the United States was a signatory of this charter. So why would the United States actually sign something that was so obviously contrary to their own philosophy? Well, if you remember the Hegelian principle where two opposing viewpoints are set into the world and neither of them is really the viewpoint you want to achieve, what you really want to achieve is a synthesis between the two. So what you see actually is you see socialists in the overriding capacity of secretary generals. Although whether they have Marxist leanings or capitalist leanings at that level doesn't make any difference. The method is just to bring about a synthesis which is the desired government of all of them. So out of this chaos you eventually get whatever you want. It's taken me 25 years to come to the conclusions that I have come to. And I want to tell you that one of the biggest things I discovered in my work was the existence of a supranational committee composed of 300 men. I came across this quite by accident when I was serving in Africa in Angola. Welcome, everyone, and good evening. Um, I will be starting this at 8 p.m. on the dot. I thought that I could share a really good article that I found, um, which is pretty interesting, uh, as we sit and wait, so that way I can deploy in four minutes. It's a very interesting article that comes from Uncover DC, where the West Virginia Secretary of State warns social media platforms to be neutral. It says, Two recent press releases from West Virginia Secretary of State Mac Warner indicate he knows what's up and isn't playing games regarding the 2024 election. In recent weeks, there's been much discussion, in some cases, legal action to prevent former President Trump from being on the ballot in 2024. In addition, as many know, ample evidence shows big tech has been working overtime to allegedly influence public opinion on any number of subjects, including elections and including war, guys. I added that. They didn't say that. Now, according to two press releases, so according to two press releases published weeks apart, one on September 27th and the other one on Thursday, Warner won't stand for any of it. So if you're looking for local action that holds people accountable concerning elections, West Virginia may be the state for you. Now, for those of you that were on the space, while we were discussing what we can do, West Virginia was one of the states that was brought up in the discussion. I think that's a pretty genius idea, and I believe that uh, we should all be looking to see what other states can actually facilitate this and assist us in our matters of elections and many, many more things. Currently, as I'm seeing in the news, uh, they are alleging that they will not, uh, they will be cutting off the internet to the Gaza Strip. For me, that is extremely concerning because then that disallows them. I mean, I would hate to be in a position where I do not have access to the outside world to see what I am going through or not. 
And now this can be done for a myriad of reasons. Either that be that they're uh, worried that there's propaganda that's going to be shown instead of the reality. Nobody knows. But regardless, uh, that terrifies me. Now, um, so this is a fantastic piece at Uncover DC. You, you all know that I don't like Tracy Beans at all because we have our own personal spot, but that doesn't mean that she doesn't produce work um, that we like. And there's a lot of work that I don't like. But this one, this is an exceptional piece as it provides us some insight as to how we can locally look at things. And I appreciate um, all of you who would go and read it because maybe we can get some hints on how we can make it move. Unfortunately, in my state of Ohio, I don't have someone that will refuse Zuckerbucks. Secretary of State of Ohio loves Zuckerbucks. So, and he's really proud of it and encourages it. So that's, that's an issue for me. So without further ado, let's get started. Enjoy episode two of the fall of Babylon, where we discuss genocide. Enjoy the show. Skull and bone of the secret society. It's so secret we can't talk about it. What does that mean for America? The conspiracy theorists are going to go watch. I'm sure they are. I don't know. I haven't seen the web. Number 322. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first of all, he's not the nominee. And, uh, but, uh, look, I look for. Are you prepared to lose? No, I'm not going to lose. You both were members of Skull and Bones, a secret society at Yale. What does that tell us? Uh, not much, because it's a secret. <laughs> Is there a secret handshake? Is there a secret code? I wish there were something secret I could manifest. 322? A secret number? Uh, there are all kinds of secrets, Tim, but one thing is not a secret. I disagree with this president's direction that he's taking the country. We can do a better job, and I intend to do it. And we'll be watching. Be safe on the campaign trail. John Kerry, thanks, thanks for joining us. And we'll be right back. Julie Ball, how are you? I'm fine, thank Governor you, Governor. Governor Jesse Ventura. Thanks for coming. Now, you've left the United States of America. Yes, sir, I have. Why? I do not feel safe living in the United really? States. Really? Do you want to come in and sit down? No, sir, I'd rather not. You'd rather just be here so you can make a fast exit if you have As to. soon as you and I finish, You're out I'm here. leaving the country again. Why? Because in a very short time, not today, not tomorrow, but very soon, we'll be facing compulsory vaccination under the mistaken term of voluntary vaccination. Are you talking to me now about the, the current swine flu? Is that I what am. You're talking about? Now, what is it about these vaccinations? You think that they're bad? Well, first of all, let's start with the fact that the World Health Organization has decided that we have 90% too many people. The World Health Organization has been working since 1974 on vaccines to create permanent sterility. Doctor, the response is going to be, and you're crazy. How can you say this stuff? I show them the documentation. Now, this is pretty shocking. This process has already been ongoing. To make matters worse, we know that 
the vaccines that were illegally approved by the FDA contain a substance called squalene. Squalene, an organic compound used in vaccines to stimulate the immune system and increase the response. If I inject you with squalene, your immune system will attack the squalene, but then it starts attacking all of the parts of your body. What does that look like when you meet a person to whom that is happening? It looks like Gulf War syndrome. It looks like every joint in the body swollen and intolerably painful and immobilized. This is in these shots they're going to give us? It's in some of them, but the U.S. government has a trick up their sleeve. Which is... Still ahead, the conspiracy shocker, a group that's even more powerful than the Bilderbergs. What that means is a holocaust, a genocidal holocaust. Jesse Ventura's investigation into the secret society that runs the world has led to this. A meeting on a remote airstrip with Dr. Rima Labo. The physician fled the United States in fear of the Bilderberg's plan to use vaccines to kill off much of the world's population. They will induce a pandemic using the nasal mist vaccine, which is a live attenuated virus. That means that if I take it, I can infect you. You're going to get the flu. Everybody around us is going to get the flu. United States government, based on their statements that they've already made, will say, oh my, we have a pandemic. Oh my goodness, we don't have enough doses. So we'll add mix squalene at the 90,000 injection stations that the Department of Health and Human Services announced that they will ship the vaccines to. People lining up, sometimes by the hundreds, for an H1N1 flu shot. What that means is a holocaust. A genocidal holocaust. Men and women will sicken and die, and those who survive will be infertile. If people start dying massively from these inoculations, won't there be like a revolution, a rebellion, a rising up from the peasants? Briefly, until the 420,000 U.S. military swing into action. If you remember, NORTHCOM, the Northern Command, was created not long ago to, among other things, relocate the population in the event of civil disorder or pandemics. Doctor, what you're saying is that if people refuse these vaccinations, that FEMA's going to put them into almost like concentration camps around the country? I think you have to leave out the word almost. Doctor, how can you say this stuff? Let me tell you a story. In 2003, I had a patient in my drug-free medical practice who was a head of state. And one day, she said, you know, it's almost time for the great culling to begin. The what? That's what I said. The what? She said the great culling, C-U-L-L-I-N-G, when you thin the herd. I said, what are you talking about? She said, it's almost time for the useless eaters to be cold. And she said, those are the people 
who are consuming our non-renewable natural resources. I said, who are the people who make the this decision? Few. She said, we, the aristocrats. This person you talk to, you're bound because you're a physician and there's, there's the relationship that you can't talk. Is this person a member of the Bilderbergs? She is not Queen Beatrice. She is not the Queen of England. She is not Henry Kissinger. But she certainly presented herself as a member of that power elite and she certainly was a head of state. Now, the Bilderbergers are much talked about at this point. I said, who's behind this? And she said, well, you've heard of the Bilderbergers, of course. I said, are they the people at the top? She said, no. The investigation is about to move into uncharted territory. Doctor, we're talking about some wild stuff here, extinguishing 90% of the world's population. Now, what you're saying to me is the Bilderbergs are not the top echelon, but there's somebody above them? According to what I was told by this woman, there's a council of seven men, and they make long-term decisions about what they want to see happen, which country rises, which country falls, which economies prosper. And it's really important to understand that these people have no affiliation to a religion, no affiliation to a nation, no affiliation to a political party. They are acting according to their own rules, and their rules are not the ones that the institutions we believe in adhere to. And you're saying these people mean genocide. The swine flu is one catalyst. Remember, if you're a genocidalist, you have to work really hard to kill six billion people. As a military person, somebody trained as a SEAL, you know that the SEALs might be able to carry out the job, but you also had backup and collateral strength. How powerful are the Bilderbergs or the people above them in the world? powerful as we, the people in the aggregate, are. When we raise our voices, every single time they step back. The problem is, the dirty little secret is that we have that power. They don't want us to know that we have that power. Her warning delivered. Dr. Lebo heads back to her hideaway in the mountains of Panama. Her message is clear. It's up to everyone else to decide what to do with her information. So this is, you know, uh, a couple years ago, I was at a, a, a gathering with 120 world leaders in an, on an island off the coast of Australia, up in the Great Barrier Reef, and, and it was one of these confabs where the, the Chatham House rules are in effect. I don't know if you know what those are. It means that you can share what's stated there, but you can't attribute it to anybody. So I was sort of a, a guest speaker, um, the organizers of it, or people who were very good friends with the Clinton. So, in other words, it's kind of like Las Vegas. Yes, exactly. You, 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 know, you can't say who said what. So it was interesting because I had people at this meeting who, who absolutely were, you know, they, they were very upfront about the fact that this information is something that can either be viewed as disruptive or transformational. And so the whole title of this entire three-day weekend with these uh, literally 120 world leaders that were at this um, from all walks of life, some were corporate, some were academic, some were political, the Minister of Defense was there, and basically the title of it was some disruption opportunity. So the whole point I was trying to make is, it, it's like if, if somebody had wanted to suppress the internet or computers coming around because you own stock in royal typewriters or something. You know, it, yes, it's disruptive on one level. On another level, it would be incredibly transformational. I mean, imagine having a civilization where there was no longer the need for poverty or pollution, and energy would be zero at its cost. I mean, this would be amazing. Now, there are stakeholders. I mean, some of the top people in the Australian coal mining industry were there, which is the only bright spot in the Australian economy for exports to China is coal to run the, the, the polluting uh, power plants in China. That's why all the pollution is landing on the West Coast uh, from China. But, you know, obviously those coal mines would be shut down within 10 or 15 years. And the 
use that oil for plastic, and that's it. But that's, but, but, you know, we're now talking trillions of dollars of an economic change, but we're also talking about an economy that would be lifted, that would be grown, grown that would be growing by tens of trillions of dollars. So it depends on where the stakeholders are and how much power they have. The problem with our political system, and by extension, our macroeconomic and military-industrial complex, is that the stakeholders who have the power are the people who are really calling the shots. All right. Uh, let, let me stop you uh, for a second. I want to ask a question. Yeah. You touched on political, so I'm going to ask you about this. Yeah. In years past, Doctor, we have had uh, candidate after candidate after candidate who is an insider. And we've had to choose from insider one or insider two, and once in a while maybe an insider three. This, this year, things are a little bit different. We've got Trump, for one thing. Trump is, I don't know what Trump is. He's a wild man, an absolute wild man. But if he became president, do you think there's a chance that he would say to hell with all of you, I'm going to tell you? Well, I will tell you what. He, you, yours to making a, a, this a fact, not in evidence. Okay. Here's, yeah. the, the, here's the fact that's not in evidence. You're, you're making an assumption that the president of the United States, well, no. by virtue of that, has an all-access pass. They do not. I mean, remember what Jimmy Carter said. Jimmy Carter ran on ending UFO secrecy. He had a sighting. He got into the White House and he started pushing on this. And started the whole White House study of UFOs. And the two, two of these goons showed up with an all-access pass in the Oval Office and said to the president, Sir, if you would like to complete your first term as president, you will keep your damn mouth shut about this. Now, this I know for a fact. All right, all right. I know. Yeah. I know okay. this. So, so, so this is the question is, you know, you know, you could put anyone in the Oval Office. And the question is, do they have the courage to stand up to these sort of interests? And that's what we haven't seen. And I, and I, I'm not holding my breath that anyone from left, right, center, libertarian, a, would have access, and B, would have the courage to stand up to these folks. Now, could they? Technically, yes. There's enough actionable intelligence, let me just use that word, um, that we can provide that if they wanted to get into that system and demand, they could. Now, okay, well, all I'm saying is our potential political near future could be very different. I'm not saying that well, they would have the past that, that they need or that they would have the knowledge they would need, but some of what's offered looks a little different this time around. Yeah, you're right, it does, and whether or not that plays out in, into, you know, I tell people when you boil it all down, the currency that matters, courage. Um, you know, I, I think if you don't have the courage to do it, you're not going to do it. I mean, I, you know, and, and, and so far what I've seen with the political class and the money class is that when the going gets tough, they run the other way with their tail between their legs. Now, that maybe that's a very jaundiced view, but um, that's that's what I've observed over 25 years of dealing with, with. And I have a home in Washington. I meet with folks all the time, and, and obviously many of them, everyone is interested in the subject. Let me put that put it that way. Whether or not anyone wants to stick their neck out on it, that's a very big question. Well, I think there are going to be more willing to stick their necks out when they begin to observe the water at their ankles. Well, yes, that that could be, you know, and how much pain does there have to be before these folks begin to realize we just can't continue driving the ship of state over a cliff here. Ironically, however, the very innovations that are making possible dramatic improvements in human well-being are also creating new problems which raise the specter of an alarming and possibly catastrophic disaster to the biosphere we live in. And herein lies the dilemma that we all face. Let me illustrate. Improved public health has caused the world's infant mortality rate to decline by 60% over the last 40 years. In the same period, 
the world's average life expectancy has increased from 46 years in 1950s to 63 years today. This is a development which, as individuals, we can only applaud. However, the result of these positive measures is a world population that has risen during the same short period of time geometrically to almost 6 billion people and could easily exceed six billion, 8 billion by the year 2020. The negative impact of population growth on all of our planetary ecosystems is becoming appallingly evident. The rapid growing exploitation of the world's supply of energy and water is a matter of deep concern. And the toxic byproducts of widespread industrialization have increased atmospheric pollution to dangerous levels. Unless nations will agree to work together to tackle these cross-border challenges posed by population growth, overconsumption of resources, and environmental degradation, the prospects for a decent life on our planet will be threatened. The recent UN meeting in Cairo is appropriately focused on one of these key issues, population growth. But the controversies which have erupted at the conference illustrate the problem of coming to grips with issues that are deeply divisive and which have a profound moral dimension. The United Nations can and should play an essential role in helping the world find a satisfactory way of stabilizing world population and stimulating economic development in a manner that is sensitive to religious and moral considerations. Economic growth is, of course, an in inevitable corollary of a growing population and is essential to improve standards of living. But without careful coordination, unrestrained economic growth poses further threats to our environment. This was a major subject of discussion at the conference in Rio de Janeiro on the environment two years ago. The focus then was on sustainable growth and global development. It was pointed out at the conference that growth is most efficiently managed by the private sector. But regulation of the process by national governments and international bodies is also needed. And once again, the United Nations should certainly be among the catalysts and coordinators of this process. Partnered with Google, for example, if you Google climate change, you will, at the top of your search, you will get all kinds of UN resources. We started this partnership when we were shocked to see that when we Googled climate change, we were getting incredibly distorted uh, information right at the top. So we, we're becoming much more proactive. Um, you know, we own the science and we think that the world, you know, should know it. I think the chief value of science is power. Science is mainly about gaining power, gaining power over the world. They use truth to some extent on the way to achieving power or to achieving uh, order, but this is not say, their say highest more about, Say more a bit power, about power, what, what do you mean? I think science as an institution is interested in gaining the power, that, to gain control over the world. Science is not really, at least this is why I view as a historian, science is not really about truth, it's about power. 
the real aim of science as a project, as an establishment, is not truth, it's power. Uh, particular individuals, particular scientists, may be very interested in the truth, personally. But as an uh, institution, the real aim of science is power. No more gun. There is no more gun in science. You can't publish any article in any academic journal, in, I think in any discipline, which explains something with God. I've worked on climate change for 25 years. I've worked on climate change since 73. So you just to tell you, because I was the person who gave the Club of Rome the first big platform. I share with you the concern, and um, I think we can solve those issues only if we repair our global architecture and our global system. We are New York City's air quality index peaking above 300 or hazardous, registering among the top five worst major cities worldwide. This is not the day to train for a marathon or to do an outside event with your children. I stay inside, close windows and doors and use air purifiers if you have them. In addition to staying inside, medical experts advise wearing a high-quality mask, such as an N95, checking HEPA filters if you have them inside your home, and setting air conditioners in your car and house to recirculate. All that smoke is coming from wildfires in Canada. <laughs> Last Thursday, Oprah and Dwayne The Rock Johnson launched the People's Fund of Maui, asking people to donate the money to help those affected by the tragic wildfires. They started the campaign with $10 million, but the posts are receiving some major backlash on Instagram and on TikTok, with people criticizing the wealthy pair for asking fans to donate. Commenters say that the pair could donate all the money needed and make it all back within a year. Imagine the implications of a weapon with no visible trace. A weapon that could knock out tanks, ships, and planes as fast as the speed of light. The same technology with modifications could disorient and even tranquilize military personnel, rendering them virtually helpless in the battle zone. These are the new weapons of war we will examine in this series. For the past 40 years, the world has been riveted by the threat of nuclear war, and more recently by the prospect of space defenses using lasers and other modern technologies. But while both sides of the Geneva summit will be focusing on these matters, progress is being made in even newer weapons that could render any arms agreement relatively useless. Lightning is the most dramatic form of energy to be found in nature. Scientists have succeeded in creating limited types of artificial lightning, and some think that these could be the forerunners of a new type of directed energy weapon, part of a family of weapons which operate within the radio frequency segment of the electromagnetic spectrum, and are thus referred to as radio frequency weapons. 
Dr. James Frazier has researched electromagnetic effects for the Air Force for over 10 years, and he, like a small but growing number of weapons experts, feels radio frequency, or RF weapons, could be the wild card in the ongoing arms race. You could have tremendous radiative power. And uh, what you did with that power, then, is a matter of engineering design and what what your goal is. Robert Babb, physicist and Ph.D. in mathematics, is working on U.S. weapons research. He says that the Soviets seem to be ahead in a number of areas, and especially in our weapons. We are behind uh, the Soviet Union in directed energy weapons based on 60 gigahertz microwave beams. Dr. Bass and others feel the most likely form of Soviet RF weaponry would be high-powered microwaves, similar to a focused ultra-intensity radar beam. It would literally cook humans and knock out computers and electronic surveillance and communications gear. An operational RF weapon, relatively cheap and reusable, could devastate sophisticated, expensive war machinery. The $20 million F-16 fighter, for example, is totally controlled through electronic sensing computers. With no manual flight control, the plane would literally fall out of the sky after being hit with a high-intensity pulse of microwave radiation. Science say that microwaves and other types of RF pulses operating at specific frequencies or windows can be transmitted with little or no loss of power. Machines known as gyrotrons can produce massive pulses needed to drive these devices, and it's believed the Soviet Union has a three- to five-year lead in this technology. Over the past year, CNN has repeatedly asked the Department of Defense and the Air Force about radio frequency weapons. After much resistance, DOD finally said that the subject was too sensitive to discuss. Well, around the world right now. And these occurrences are not happenstance. They're all done by man. If there were higher courts in, in, in heaven, Right. Will you perceive to be heaven? Satan has domain here because you're doing it, not you specifically. So, um, you know, when acts of God, as they claim, which are really acts of man that happen, and that, and that also sucks because then the insurance company won't pay you when it's determined that the government actually did this, right? But weather warfare is no joke. You know, could you imagine attacking a nation with just an earthquake? you can cause utter chaos. Could you imagine throwing a bunch of tornadoes just to fuck with people? You better sign that bill. I'm going to send a tornado down your state. You better sign this. I'm going to set them all on fire while I put water next door. Frozen water. Temperature is going to drop from 80 degrees to 30. Watch me do it. But see, it's only a matter of that one point where he hears us, genuinely hears us, if we only need 1%, 1% to cut above the noise, to cut right through that firmament and be heard, 1%. Or you could be like, just, just help. Because President Trump said it best, only God can help. So when you guys start seeing things unfold, Right, because last year in February I told you about Fauci's puppies. I guess we're going to see those come out now, you know, in 2022, where there's going to be a problem. You know, Malaysian Airlines. I mean, the plane disappeared on my birthday in 2014. It was pretty weird. Pretty weird. Um, I just, I just thought to myself, wait a minute, what? Are we going to find out what happened with Epstein's jet in those rolling hills of Middle America where it teleported? You should look that episode up. It's quite fascinating. Everything's going to come out. Everything. And while they're trying to come up with cover stories, because you see them coming out every day, revisiting old tragedies, just to find explanations that aren't really explanations, but telling you that they're trying to find an explanation. 
when they come out, people will be held accountable for these things. In the meantime, it's picture the planet as you can picture it, what you perceive as a planet, like a game of risk, right? Like a game board. And you can see their pieces being moved. Find your still, because you and your families are safe, right? Do not have fear, because that is what they prey on. Because 2022 is not going to be easy. There's going to be sudden destruction. And the only thing that can help you right now is God. And see, at the beginning of the show, I showed you that video where they had these communications. And there was a reason for that. They didn't have the computer connected to internet. It didn't have a modem. And these conversations were happening. Someone was like, maybe someone's hacking. Other people were like, ooh, it was a ghost in the machine. Stop. There's no ghost in the machine. Oops. There's no ghosts in the machine, right? Energy and communication between devices can happen when they're energetically linked, when they're directly linked from a footprint. It's like a, an alloy footprint, I would say. Super highway of information and communication that you can find with terminal IDs. There are a lot of cops out today. Damn, it's gonna be crazy. Um, and so ley lines are completely different from earth energy lines fixed lay intercepts aka flies are untapped energy connections uh, untapped connections and that is more evident and hopefully you understand it helps you understand the phenomena that drew people from the sleep state to the awake state very few people can command terminals as such there are very specific ley lines but also operators, right? Because they can detect operators. Um, so hopefully um, that helps dispel the who is. It's actually the what is or the when is. As I said, when I started um, my radio show, a lot of the things that I would say would challenge status quo. But imagine if 10 years ago, someone told you that we're throwing in particles in the clouds to make them rain, you'd say that's stupid, even though they started doing it 30 years ago. Another example is the array of technologies, often referred to collectively as geoengineering, that potentially could help reverse the warming effects of global climate change. One that has gained my personal attention is stratospheric aerosol injection, or SAI. A method of seeding the stratosphere with particles that can help reflect the sun's heat in much the same way that volcanic eruptions do. An SAI program could limit global temperature increases. Welcome, everyone. Before I start streaming to the other um, destinations and begin uh, episode three of this series, I just wanted to say, and I want to make it clear, people need to start looking at history so that way they can understand exactly what's going on today. If you all remember, Israel was created 
1945. It was at the same time that the United States and their allies like Churchill and Stalin separated the Korean Peninsula. So it's not happenstance to see what is happening here. I want you guys to understand that they took that decision and carved out the land of Palestine for Israel. That was the deal. This is a real estate deal. And no matter how much people dislike it, that's the bottom line, that it was given to them. It was a contract. At first, people did not want to leave. So to perpetuate the, the wars in order to make money, they created factions within that area in order to maintain the money flow of the military industrial complex. So I want to be clear. This is not me saying that this is correct speech ever. You never dehumanize people. But the key here to understand is that the majority of the people that are now in Palestine are indeed the ones that were the mercenaries, you know, the family of the mercenaries. So when they say they're all Hamas, this is what they're saying. Still wrong. Just because you were born to be a terrorist doesn't mean you have to be a terrorist. Okay? That's fact. And a lot of them there may not even be participating. They're just there. So I want you guys to understand what is going on. So they're calling in that debt now. And this is why the Arab nations cannot go behind it because they didn't stand for them when the agreements were being made. So it's, it's, it's a horrible situation right now, what we're having. And the fact that they're amplifying this evil in the way that it wants to be done. It's 2023. See, none of you would have batted an eyelash if this happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But it's 2023. And the blood, the spilling of the blood just has to stop. And people need to be transparent and say, look, we have to evict them because that was the deal. And it's long and over. And we messed up. We paid for people because we were trying to make money on your back and maintain war zones there. I think that would be more transparent. So it's unfortunate that we don't have that much transparency. We're just labeling people as animals or, or savages, which is horrific. The savages are the ones that dance when people die. So I just wanted to put that out there. So here is episode three. I just wanted to say yesterday, uh, let me actually start the other feeds so that I can speak it. Okay, I should have YouTube up now. All right, so um, yesterday, um, episode two was um, cut off from the feed on YouTube because a very specific clip from True TV that happened years ago uh, where they were talking about vaccines, et cetera, et cetera, um, has been banned all over the world. So I, I, I apologize, but I can't put it back up because they have blocked that specific video globally. Uh, so if you want to see it, you'll have to get to Rumble or Locals and um, be able to catch it. So on that note, uh, here we go. And I'm going to start this. And I'm sorry um, for, the, for the graphic in the corner. I'm still waiting to get that fixed. All right, here we go. They were all members of the Committee of Three Parties, the recognized freedom. We are the worst offender when it comes to the last 20 years. Another study the overthrow of functioning constitutional democracies in other countries. Parties to rise up and fight. People like the Mosquito Indians in Guam. 
They're in the Middle East, the Mongs, and... ...kill or otherwise control their targets. You may have seen them hypnotized and programmed with an activation word or freak. Bits of information trickled out slowly over the course of the Iraq War in the greatest country on Earth, public. The United States... The families in Italy who were called the funding, meaning the people who had all the money, they were all members of the Committee of 300, the Lucatis, the Reconatis, the Valpi du Miseratis. These people are so wealthy that they would make David Rockefeller look like a piker. That is how rich they are. And this is the committee that runs the world. Now, in my book, The Committee of 300, I name every one of them. This is not a book that talks about they. It gives you specifics. How are they financing all of this stuff? They're financing it through the funding, who I mentioned to you earlier, the Venetian black nobility. Now, why are they called the black nobility? They called that because of the vileness and the evilness of their deeds. These families date back to the 11th centuries, the Lucatis, the Reconatis. They were called and the Gelfs, by the way, I'll come to them, they're particularly interesting. They were called that because of the evilness of their deeds. They make Lucrezia Borgia look like a Sunday school teacher. They had so much money, which is the outcome of the drug trade, the years of investing, the years of gaining control of every mining, mineral, gold, oil, natural resource of the world, that they can afford to finance these things. So the black nobility are the ancient aristocrats of Venice and Genoa. And they called that because of the nature of their deeds. The black Gelfs were one of the worst of them. Now, interesting enough, the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth II, is a Gelf. She's not a Windsor. This was a title that was evolved in 1935 by her father to put researchers off the track. Uh, I like to include myself in that category, although I wasn't doing it then. I was much too young to be doing it. But he didn't like that certain people were getting hot on the track of who this royal family actually was. And so this was put out that they are the House of Windsor. They are not. They are the House of Gelf. And it's important for us to know that because every time there's a financial crisis, it follows a meeting of the Black Gelfs upon the Royal Britannia yacht of the Queen of England, which anchors off the coast of Venice. And all the world bankers meet over there and say, now this is what we're going to do to country X. This is how we're going to control this worldwide situation. And then they go off and give their orders to everybody. So that is the way it is done. Who and what is the Committee of 300? Well, I've dealt with that. I've told you this is a supranational body that knows no boundaries, respects the laws of no countries. The first time that they were publicly announced was by a German socialist by the name of Walter Rathenau. I'll give you some background of Walter Rathenau. He was the financial advisor to the Kaiser of Germany, and he was also the financial advisor to the Rothschilds, the French family Rothschilds. So he must have known what he's talking about. He made an astonishing statement in 1934. He said, there is a committee are 300 men that rule the world. They are known only to each other, and nothing happens without their consent. When former head of state Mikhail Gorbachev visited the United States a few years ago, flanked by George Bush and Quayle, he opened his Gorbachev Foundation in the United States. And he left slip, he said, this is being done with approval of the Committee of 300. CNN cameras were on him. They immediately switched. Now, I wrote to CNN, and I said, could I have a transcript of this program, which they said was available. I never got a reply. I followed it up with letter after letter, but nothing ever came of it. The point I'm trying to make, ladies and gentlemen, is that the federal government, the secret upper-level parallel government that runs the United States, does not want you to know that you have an upper-level parallel government that calls the shots that dictates what is going to happen to your life and mine.
the one world government began with King George III. At the time that the colonists were brave enough to take him on, King George was already busy formulating a one world government, and he had lined up at least 50 countries that were willing to come into this future world dictatorship with him. The goals then very simply stated are to make the world over into a one world, new world order dictatorship controlled utterly and completely by this committee of 300. How can they possibly carry out their goals? That's the next question that I'm often asked. They do it by dint and by virtue of their fantastic wealth and the fact that they control thousands of the top banking institutions, the political organizations, insurance companies. In fact, one of the giant insurance companies, a man called me and said, do you mean to tell me that they are controlling the Metropolitan of New York? I said, the Metropolitan of New York is peanuts. He said, how can you say that? That's a giant American company. I said, well, compared with the Securenzi, the Generali di Venezia, it's peanuts. That's the biggest insurance company in the world. They control that organization. Everything that happens in the world, in the insurance field, comes out of Venice. That's why Venice is so important, because in Venice, we have the black nobility. So the goals are a one-world dictatorship of the most brutal kind. And how they carry it out is they have these interface banks, insurance companies, mining conglomerates, every conceivable control in politics, including the Democrat Party of the United States, which is, of course, since 1980 behind closed doors at a secret caucus in Washington, D.C., the Democrat hierarchy took on the goals of the old Socialist Party USA, i.e. based upon the Communist Manifesto of 1848. So they carry out their goals through existing organizations. And also, of course, they have built up some special organizations of their own. When I first started writing in America when I came here in 1969, I revealed the existence of an organization called the Royal Institute for International Affairs, which is located at Chatham House, in St. James Square in London. I also revealed the existence of the Club of Rome, the Sini Foundation, the Mont Pelerin Society, the Order of St. John, which was known but not known. And I listed all of these secret societies that run the world as executive arms of the Committee of 300. So it controls the world through all of these. The Royal Institute for International Affairs is the executive arm of this committee, which gives instructions to the United States government to this very day. The chain of command is as follows. Every Secretary of State that has been appointed since 1919 is appointed by the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And if you search diligently and apply the correct rules, you will come up blank. Every one of the Secretaries of State was chosen in London by the Secretary of State, as was uh, Wilson, the President Wilson, as was Roosevelt, as was James Earl Carter, he was specially chosen because he'd had three mental breakdowns and they felt he would be a good guy to manipulate. Oh, I'm talking facts. I'll tell you the story of that. In my World in Review news magazine, I wrote that, James, I'm digressing a bit here, but it's necessary to do that now and then. It's not a sign of a bad speaker, although I don't put any laurels around my own neck. But James Earl Carter was not a known entity in the American scene. I first heard of him through my intelligence contacts particularly my French sources, who were one of the best in the world after MI6, and he told me, your next president is going to be a peanut farmer from Georgia. And I said, how come? He said, right now they're meeting at the Dorchester Hotel in London. And if you get your fanny over there, he said, you'll find that uh, 
there's a lot of goings on you might like to look at. And lo and behold, that's what was happening. The Royal Institute for International Affairs had ordered David Rockefeller to find a candidate who was totally weak, preferably a little mentally weak. And they put one of the greatest brainwashing specialists in the world, trained by the Tavistock Institute for Human Relations, Dr. Peter Bourne, on the job. And he said, it's funny you should say that. One of my patients is a guy from Georgia, James O'Carty, and this guy can't take rejections, and he's been to me three times for a nervous breakdown. So they hiked Carter over to London and faded him at the Dorchester Hotel, which is a very ritzy place, and they faded him and wined and dined him, and the next thing we saw, Time, Newsweek, every newspaper in the country, James Earl Carter. Now we, in our little magazine, World in Review, we told those of our subscribers, this man is your next president. We also did exactly the same thing with William Jefferson Clinton, because we had the story of the Club of Rome, we knew who Agnelli was, we knew that Agnelli had had a huge love affair with Mrs. Pamela Harriman, and that Mrs. Pamela Harriman was the doyen of the Democrat Party, and Mrs. Harriman had been given the task of finding the next president of the United States, a socialist. And she picked up Clinton and said, you're our boy. But there's one snag. Now, Clinton went up there, brushing his forelock back, and said, well, you know, there's one problem, my wife left me. So Mrs. Harriman was dumbfounded. She said, well, you better give it back in a hurry. And he said, no, she doesn't want to come back to me because of my uh, trice with other women. That's how he put it. My philanderings would have been a better word, but he said trice with other women. So Mrs. Harriman sent for Mrs. Clinton, and she duly came to New York, and she sat her down and said, look, if you want to be the first lady of America with all the attendant prestige and power, you better forget about your husband's philanderings and get right back to him. And that is precisely what happened. And when I heard that had happened, I knew this guy was the next president. And we wrote that in our news magazine. And sure enough, a year later, here came marching into the scene William Jefferson Clinton. So the RIA, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, does control everything that happens in the United States. They give their orders to the Morgan Guarantee and Trust Bank on Wall Street. And the chief executive officer of that organization is Dennis Weatherstone, and he duly relays the orders over to the Secretary of State, whoever that happens to be. Uh, and he then relays the orders to the President. There are many other societies that are operating for the RIIA. The Illuminati, which has been around for many, many years. I've written a work called The Illuminati in America, 1784 to 1994. A lot of people think this is an ancient secret society that's gone away. They think that Adam Weishaupt had a quarrel with the Catholic Church, and that's it. Don't you believe it? Thirteen of the top families in the United States are in the Illuminati today, and they have a big say on everything that happens politically in this country. Then we have the Society of Cincinnati, which I don't think many of you will have heard about. That is an ultra-ultra-secret society to which every president of the United States is forced to belong, including our so-called conservative presidents. And I point this out to you to show you that it doesn't matter who is in the White House. This committee of 300, through the Royal Institute for International Affairs, through the Council on Foreign Relations, exercise, exercises complete control. The CIA from the very beginning, at least as early as 1951, has used the information that it has collected. And it has used the information in order to penetrate and to manipulate the institutions of power in whatever country it is operating in order to influence the course of events in those countries. And essentially this uh, boils down to propping up those forces which are considered to be the friendly forces and in penetrating, dividing, weakening and ultimately destroying those forces which are considered to be the enemy forces. 
Since its very inception as the Office of Strategic Services, the clandestine operations group known today as the Central Intelligence Agency has engaged in some of the worst atrocities in modern history. We're going to focus on some of the big picture stuff. Let's start with election meddling. According to US politicians, there's nothing more sacred than free and fair elections. We accuse other nations of meddling all the time. Recently, it's been Russia, Iran, and China getting the accusatory since its very inception as the Office of Strategic Services, the clandestine operations group known today as the Central Intelligence Agency has engaged in some of the worst atrocities in modern history. We're going to focus on some of the big picture stuff. Let's start with election meddling. According to US politicians, there's nothing more sacred than free and fair elections. We accuse other nations of meddling all the time. Recently, it's been Russia, Iran, and China getting the accusatory finger pointed at them. But as much as we want to project an image of our nation as a shining beacon of truth and freedom, we are the worst offender when it comes to meddling in foreign affairs. And it's not even close. The CIA isn't a fan of subtle manipulation. The intelligence agency wants the world to see the results of whatever election or administration they're disrupting. What they don't want is for people to know they're the ones pulling the strings. According to one study, the CIA had engaged in 81 overt or covert interventions in foreign affairs between 1945 and 2000. And that's just the ones we know about, and not even counting the constant meddling and destabilization of the last 20 years. Another study found that the US was responsible for no fewer than 61 attempts at regime change during the Cold War alone, all spearheaded by the CIA. They undertake to run operations in every corner of the globe. Uh, they also undertook the license of operating uh, just totally above and beyond U.S. laws. They had a license, if you will, to kill, but also they, they took that to a license to smuggle drugs, a license to do all kinds of things to other people in other societies in violation of international law, our law, and every principle of nations working together for a healthier and more peaceful uh, world. We manipulated and organized the overthrow of functioning constitutional democracies in other countries. We organized secret armies and directed them to fight in just about every continent in the world. We encouraged ethnic minorities to rise up and fight. People like the Mosquito Indians in Nicaragua, the Kurds in the Middle East, the Hmongs in, in Southeast Asia. We have organized and we still do and fund death squads in countries around the world like the Treasury Police in El Salvador which are responsible for most of the killing of the 50,000 people just in the 80s, and there were 70,000 before that. And orchestration, CIA, secret teams, and propaganda led us directly into the Korean War. We were attacking China from the islands, Kemoi, Matsu, Thailand, Tibet, uh, a lot of drug trafficking involved in this, by the way, until eventually we convinced ourselves to fight the Chinese in Korea, and we had the Korean War, and a million people were killed. Same thing for the Vietnam War, and we have extensive documentation of how the CIA was involved at every level, or the national security complex, because it's a very cooperative thing, into manipulating the nation into the Vietnam War. Let me just put it this way. The best heads that I coordinate with studying this thing, we count at least minimum figure six million people who've been killed in this long 40-year war that we've waged against the people of the third world. But funding coups and destabilizing entire regions takes a lot of money. Luckily for the CIA, their scope of work was broad enough to include a particularly lucrative industry, drug smuggling. At least as far back as the Vietnam War, CIA operatives were heavily involved in trafficking drugs into the United States. CIA planes would make routine trips to and from places like Costa Rica and Honduras, working with cartels to secure massive amounts of heroin and cocaine, which they would then shuttle back to the US and sell for a healthy profit. Because of their secretive line of work, these planes could land in places where normal customs regulations don't apply. 
It's a dream scenario for drug smuggling. The piles of money the CIA makes from this practice have directly funded the undermining of democracy throughout the world, with the added effect of introducing harmful drugs to the American population. Drug running and coups are bad enough, is their fondness for bizarre, questionable, and sometimes downright evil experiments. Since the end of World War II, the intelligence agency has experimented with everything from chemical weapons to biological weapons to mind control and death rays. The CIA is on a never-ending quest to find new ways to secretly kill or otherly funded the undermining of democracy throughout the world, with the added effect of introducing harmful drugs to the American population. Drug running and coups are bad enough, is their fondness for bizarre, questionable, and sometimes downright evil experiments. Since the end of World War II, the intelligence agency has experimented with everything from chemical weapons to biological weapons to mind control and death rays. The CIA is on a never-ending quest to find new ways to secretly kill or otherwise control their targets. You may have seen the movie The Manchurian Candidate. The film was based on the CIA's experimental mind control program, where a subject would be hypnotized and programmed with an activation word or phrase, something that, when heard, would trigger their CIA training and turn them into a sort of deadly automaton. The CIA wanted to create these sleeper agents and plant them in target countries around the world. It sounds absurd, but the Cold War was a scary time, and the CIA was a scary place. But what they haven't given up is torture. Torture is something that no human being should be capable of doing to another, but it's part of the standard CIA toolkit, and it has been for years. This really only came to the attention of the American people during the Iraq War when the horrific images from secret prisons and black sites like Abu Ghraib found their way onto US television screens. Waterboarding, sensory and sleep deprivation, dogs, insects, electrical shock, all of these and even more twisted techniques were used to get supposed criminals to confess, or get war prisoners to give up valuable information. For years, the gruesome details of America's so-called enhanced interrogation program were hidden from the public. Bits of information trickled out slowly over the course of the Iraq War and the years following. Now, nearly two decades after the CIA fabricated the intelligence that led us into war with Iraq, a fuller picture of the horrors of CIA black sites has been assembled. One prisoner, 49-year-old Abu Zubaydah, the first person to be subjected to the torture program approved by President George W. Bush, has provided drawings of what he experienced at a CIA black site in Thailand. Zubaydah, who was captured because the CIA mistakenly thought he was a top Al-Qaeda lieutenant, describes waterboarding, which he endured 83 times, being crammed into a tiny confinement box meant to break his resolve, chained in so-called stress positions for hours. For example, his wrist being chained so high that he had to stand on tiptoes. He also depicts being hooded, chained in the fetal position, and tethered to a cell bar to prevent movement. He describes a process known as walling, in which the prisoner has his head banged into a wall, and when he falls down, he's dragged back up to his feet by a plastic wrap towel around his neck. Another drawing shows a larger confinement box, pitch black, with the prisoner chained in a seated position over a bucket which was meant to serve as a toilet. Zubaida also describes being deprived of sleep for two to three weeks at a time, kept awake by having water thrown on him and being chained in painful positions. This is the legacy of the CIA during the Iraq War and for years after. Cruel, inhumane torture, approved by the very highest authority in the country after the CIA fabricated the reasons for invading Iraq in the first place. Today, the CIA claims they no longer torture human beings. Instead, they're known to train non-Americans to do it for them, to maintain their plausible deniability. The CIA trains, observes, and provides equipment to foreign agents who are less constrained by public outcry. The torture continues, but now the CIA can claim that they're not the ones doing it.
But who's going to stand up to the most powerful bully in the world? For those of you thinking that this doesn't matter because you live in the U.S., I've got bad news for you. In 1975, a U.S. intelligence committee found that the CIA owned more than 200 wire services, newspapers, magazines, and book publishers, and subsidized many more. A separate New York Times investigation revealed an additional 50 media operations run by the CIA, both within the U.S. and abroad, and another 12 publishing houses which had produced over 1,200 books secretly commissioned by the CIA. Okay, what does this mean? It means that the CIA has been running a secret propaganda campaign on American citizens for almost half a century. More recently, the agency has awarded contracts worth billions of dollars to Microsoft, IBM, Oracle, Amazon, and Google to complete assignments issued by the CIA. The Central Intelligence Agency has its tendrils in every single aspect of modern life. Books, magazines, movies, television, social media, and big tech. Just as the CIA works hard to undermine freedom and democracy around the world, it also works hard to keep Americans convinced that they live in the greatest country on Earth, and that there is no alternative to American supremacy. The CIA is a terrorist organization, the biggest one in the world, and it needs to be abolished and its records made public. The United States has no right to impose its will on the rest of the world, and it certainly has no right to do it in secret. grateful to the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and other publications whose directors have attended our meetings and restricted their promises of discretion for almost 40 years. It would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world if we had been subject to the bright lights of publicity. But the world is now more sophisticated and prepared to march toward a world government. renowned thinkers. The Club of Rome analyzes today's challenges facing the world, their root causes, and the possible futures in a systematic and holistic manner. The Club of Rome encourages global debate in order to set in motion actions that by the middle of the century and Google to complete assignments issued by the CIA. The intelligence agency has its tendrils in every single aspect of modern life. Books, magazines, movies, television, social media, and big tech. Just as the CIA works hard to undermine freedom and democracy around the world, it also works hard to keep Americans convinced that they live in the greatest country on Earth, and that there is no alternative to American supremacy. The CIA is a terrorist organization, the biggest one in the world, and it needs to be abolished and its records made public. The United States has no right to impose its will on the rest of the world, and it certainly has no right to do it in secret. We are grateful to the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and other publications whose directors have attended our meetings and restricted their promises of discretion for almost 40 years. It would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world if we had been subject that the world is now more sophisticated and prepared to march toward a world government. Club of Rome analyzes today's challenges facing the world, 
their root causes and the possible futures in a systematic and holistic manner. The Club of Rome encourages global debate in order to set in motion actions that by the middle of the century will ensure a secure, equitable and prosperous world. Psychologist Stanley Milgram had also looked at how we respond to authority. In order to understand how people were induced to obey unjust regimes and participate in atrocities such as the Holocaust, he set up an experiment. Volunteers were told they were taking part in scientific research to improve memory. Would you open those and tell me which of you is which, please? Teacher. Teacher. Separated by a screen, the teacher would ask the learner questions in a word game and administer an electric shock when the answer was incorrect. He was told to increase the voltage with each wrong answer. Cloud. Horse. Rock. House. Answer. Wrong. 150 volts. Answer. Horse. Oh. Experiment. That's all. Get me out of here. Get me out of here, please. Continue. Participants didn't know that the learner was really an actor, and the so-called shocks harmless. You're gonna get a shock. 2 thirds of volunteers were prepared to administer a potentially fatal electric shock when encouraged to do so by what they perceived as a legitimate authority figure. In this case, a man out. 375 volts. I think something's happened to that in there. I don't get no answer. He was hollering with less voltage. Can't you check in to see if he's all right, please? Milgram's findings horrified America. They showed that decent American citizens were as capable of committing acts against their conscience as the Germans had been under the Nazis. We're here at the Minnesota State Capitol in Sacramento, Boston. is a Nazi symbol, a type of sun wheel employed in a post-Nazi Germany context by neo-Nazis, and in some strains of Satanism. 
The symbol's design consists of 12 radial SIG rooms, similar to the symbols employed by the SS in their logo. It first appeared in Nazi Germany as a design element in a castle at Wolfsburg remodeled and expanded by Heinrich Himmler which he intended to be a center for the SS. Whether the design had a name, or held any particular significance among the SS remains unknown. Its association with the occult originates with a 1991 German novel Die Schwarz Song von Tashi Lumbo by the pseudonymous author Russell McLeod. The book links the Wolfsburg mosaic with the neo-Nazi concept of the Black Sun, invented by former SS officer Wilhelm Landig as a substitute for the Nazi swastika. In 1933, Heinrich Himmler acquired a castle near Paderborn, Germany. Himmler intended to make the structure into a center for the SS, and between 1936 and 1942, Himmler ordered the building expanded and rebuilt for ceremonial purposes. As a product of Himmler's remodeling, 12 dark green radially overlaid SIG rooms, such as those employed in the logo of the SS, appear on the white marble floor of the structure's north tower, the Obergrim Forestler General's Hole. I think um, it's critical to most companies' success is creating leaders who are really focused on serving the mission of the company and the employees of the company, in addition to the broader shareholders, um, but who are real servant leaders, who understand that their success depends on empowering their people, setting a clear direction, being uh, clear about objectives, but then really empowering their people, giving them the training, the resources, the runway, so that they, they can actually pick up the ball, whatever their piece of responsibility is, and really run with it. This pandemic has provided an opportunity. Here we are now with an economy in crisis, but with an incredible opportunity. It's certainly a major crisis, but it also offers us a unique opportunity. Unprecedented opportunity to rethink and reset. The great opportunity for reset. Opportunity for us to reset. For a reset. Some people would say this revolution is characterized by the fight of robots against human beings and we will win this fight. Professor Klaus Schwab was born in 1938 in Ravensburg, Germany, where Nazi crimes against humanity were committed. His father, Eugene Wilhelm Schwab, was the managing director of Escher Weiss Ravensburg, a company that used slave labor to manufacture weapons of war for the Third Reich. While Klaus's father was at the helm, the Nazi party awarded Escher Weiss Ravensburg the title of National Socialist Model Company. Years later, Klaus Schwab joined the board of directors at Escher Weiss Ravensburg, where he played a key role in the development of South Africa's nuclear weapons program during the darkest years of the racist apartheid regime. Today, Klaus Schwab is the founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum you'd like to meet the people who are supposed to repair the state of the world or give a piece of your mind to the bankers who helped get us into this mess we can tell you where to find a lot of them the world economic forum founded in 1971 the world economic forum is an international private organization which receives billions of tax-free dollars from its members and their global enterprises every year the wef brings together its members with world leaders big pharma executives tech titans, Hollywood celebrities, media personalities, and internet influencers to meet in the secluded mountains of Davos, Switzerland. 
It is a tiny town folded into the Swiss Alps, a village where you could bump into Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, the head of Google, and the Queen of Jordan, all in one place. A lot of reporters cover the forum, but few get inside. It turns out there are two Davoses, one you see and one you don't. After hours, there are hundreds of private parties where deals are done. People who can't be seen together in public can meet here. Your Royal Highnesses, Excellencies, distinguished heads of state and government, the future is built by us, by a powerful community as you here in this room. Klaus Schwab, the founder of the WEF, is particularly upfront and even proud of his ability to shape and influence world politics. I created the community of Global Shapers as a means, as a force to shape our common future. And of course, their Global Young Leaders program is a grooming ground so that when they ultimately infiltrate cabinets, we penetrate the cabinets, they will likely tend to govern a certain way. Nobody will be safe if not everybody is vaccinated. The names in the countries he mentioned ended up being some of the most dystopian and authoritative during this pandemic. Names like Ms. Merkel, uh, Vladimir Putin, and so on. Other names? Jacinda Ardern, Sebastian Kurz, Mauricio McCree, Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Ma, Gavin Newsom, Stephane Bancel, Chelsea Clinton, Leonardo DiCaprio, Sanjay Gupta, Dr. Leanna Wen, Alexander and Jonathan Soros, George Soros' sons, and several of the Rothschilds. And of course... Now who could represent such a world better than you, Prime Minister? In 2014, Klaus Schwab called for the Great Reset. We need a Great Reset. Which he positioned as the solution to the world's most urgent issues. The dark reality of Schwab's agenda is detailed in his best-selling book, COVID-19, The Great Reset. His in-game mission is to replace independent governance with a top-down controlled, one-world government and a central bank-controlled digital currency. When they say, you'll be happy, what they mean is, you'll be enslaved. And I have to say, in my memory, you were one of the most engaged and hardest working participants here at the annual meeting. Dr. Schwab, I'm flattered you'd ask me to keynote. You've written extensively on the topic that you've asked me to speak to. Mastering the Fourth Industrial Revolution. COVID makes it, it accelerates the process of digitalization and automatization. It legitimizes the deployment of mass surveillance and it makes surveillance go under your skin. Nobody wants to know what's in the vaccines because look, if people understood what was in the vaccine, they'd go apeshit. And you see, the difference of this fourth uh, industrial revolution is it doesn't change what you are doing. It changes you if you take a genetic editing. The Ten Commandments of the New World Order is this. So please listen and question each commandment. 1. Maintaining humanity under 500 million people in perpetual balance with nature. 2. Guide reproductivity wisely. Improving fitness and diversity. 3. Unite humanity with a new living language. 4. Rural passion. Faith, tradition, and all things with tampered reason. 5. Protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. 6. 
Let all nations rule internally revolve external disputes in a world court. 7. Avoid petty laws and useless affairs. 8. Balance personal rights with social duties. 9. Prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. And 10. Be now a cancer on the earth, said twice. Love for nature. While these commandments may seem promising, they are really not. They want control. They want to enslave humanity forever. Do not fall for their new world order lies, deceit, and garbage. These standing stones are enormous and made of solid granite. When you're near them, they are genuinely impressive and imposing, the sort of thing that makes you wonder how ancient people ever managed to raise them up and to place them so precisely that they act as an astronomical calendar. These particular stones don't make you wonder that, though, because these are the Georgia Guidestones in the USA, and they were put up in 1980 by modern people with modern equipment. They are not a theme park fiberglass replica, though. They are more than a hundred tons of rock, and they are built to last. Inscribed on them in eight languages are what seem to be rules for a future post-apocalyptic civilization. The sort of thing that maybe seemed like a reasonable way to send a message to the far distant future in an era when the Cold War was looking dicey and Ronald Reagan's finger was very close to the nuclear button. The person or people who paid for these stones stayed anonymous, so no one knows if they were actually intending to troll conspiracy theorists. Maybe they really were just hoping to create a modern Stonehenge, something that could be taken as a set of principles for the world's population to follow as we recovered after an apocalypse. This might seem like a reasonable purchase, even altruistic from a certain perspective, if you're the sort of person who writes a story in your head that says, well, yes, I'll be dead in a nuclear fireball, but if civilization survives, perhaps someone will, will come across these, perhaps some language will have survived, perhaps I, I will have influenced the entire path of a civilization to come. I, I mean, it would take a lot of money and a lot of ego, but then it was America in the 1980s, so perhaps we should just be surprised that there aren't more stones like this all over the place. Imagine a dozen different monuments, all with different rules, and all being followed by a different group of survivors. I don't normally speculate like this in videos, but these stones inspire some pretty good stories. And some pretty bad ones, too. Because, like I said, if you wanted to inflame conspiracy theorists, building a modern Stonehenge that acts as an astronomical calendar with ten commandments inscribed upon it, one of which says that you should guide reproduction wisely, and another that says it would be a really good idea to have a world population under 10% of what it currently is, and doing all that while hiding your identity? Yeah, I can see why that might make people with a slightly tenuous grasp on reality a bit angry. All the best secret societies, after all, do put up giant monuments advertising their goals for the world. Maybe someday we will know the real reasons behind these stones. Dr. Fauci, America has changed so rapidly in the last week. When is life going to get back to normal? How long is this going to last? You know, Nora, we don't know how long it lasts. If you look at what's happened in China, they went way up and they're starting to come right down now. The Korea curve is peaking. It's starting to kind of flatten out. So you usually measure in a matter of several weeks to a couple of months. Don't go to crowded places. France is trying to close down restaurants right. and cafes exactly. and bars. Yeah. Should that happen here in the United States? You know, every single day we meet with the task force and we take a look at what's going on. And you don't want to make a pronouncement that no one should ever go into a restaurant. I mean, I think that might be overkill right now, but everything is on the table. We're faced with a real challenge. You can't stay shut down forever. 
So it's going to have to be a balance between containing the potential resurgence, which we will hopefully have the capability of doing at the same time as we march forward to some sort of normalization and reopening not only our country, but the rest of the world. Because if you look at what's going on, so many other countries are trying to do the same thing we're trying to do. The question is, we needed to do it prudently and safely in the context of our ability to respond when you do see these bit of resurgences. And a final question. Are you breathing a sigh of relief yet? A sigh of relief? No. I, I never get ahead of myself. I'll breathe every sigh. You know, as Yogi Berry used to say, it ain't over till it's over. You know, and, and, and that's when I'll read, uh, breathe a sigh of relief, when we're really yeah. completely out of this. Right. Dr. Anthony Fauci, Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure. The COVID-19 pandemic is one of the biggest challenges we are facing. It's been a stark and painful reminder that nobody is safe until everyone is safe. There will be other pandemics and other major health emergencies. No single government or multilateral agency can address this threat alone. Together, we must be better prepared to predict, prevent, detect, assess, and effectively respond to pandemics in a highly coordinated fashion. The 194 member states of the World Health Organization resolve to work together towards a new international instrument for pandemic preparedness and response. This renewed collective commitment is a milestone in stepping up pandemic preparedness at the highest political level. Such an agreement, rooted in the World Health Organization Constitution, could strengthen existing international health instruments, especially the international health regulations, and provide a firm and tested foundation on which we can build and improve. The agreement also has the potential to foster an all-of-government and all-of-society approach, strengthening national, regional, and global capacities and resilience to future pandemics. This could include greatly enhancing international cooperation to approve alert systems, data sharing, research, and local, regional, and global production and distribution of medical public health countermeasures such as vaccines, diagnostics, and personal protective equipment. The agreement could also recognize the One Health approach that connects the health of our planet. To achieve this, WHO will support its member states in their work and facilitate the involvement of relevant stakeholders, including from civil society and the private sector. Pandemic preparedness needs global leadership for a global health system fit for this millennium. To make this commitment a reality, we must be guided by solidarity, fairness, transparency, inclusiveness, and equity. What is the Global 2000? Once again, when I heard about this policy, it was three days after it had been accepted by the United States government as its official policy. And the Global 2000 was a blueprint for mass genocide produced by the Club of Rome. Basically, what the Global 2000 calls for is the destruction of half of the world's population by the year 2050, hence the title 2000. They built a case based on Bertrand Russell and H.G. Wells findings that the world was going to be overpopulated, would be a terrible place to live in. That was picked up by a fellow called J uh, uh, Robert Strange McNamara, and a stranger individual you're not likely to meet in this world. And this man had a conference of all the leading bankers about 12 years ago, and he said the biggest menace facing the world today is the American middle class and overpopulation. He linked the two together. And he said, by the year 2050, this is the state of the world. All of these unfed, unwashed people, no jobs. He said, do we want to live in a world like that? So the Global 2000 was a genocidal plan to take care 
of the people of the United States who don't have any jobs and like Alexander King said are never going to get their jobs back and the masses of people in other nations. That is why we had the sudden appearance of AIDS. I was told there's a CAB experiment, that's chemical and bacteriological warfare experiment going on in Sierra Leone in Africa. That's a remote corner of Africa, West Africa, just above Liberia. If you look at your map, your atlas, and you'll see where it's located. Why Liberia? Extremely hard country to get to. You have to fly from London. That's the only way you can get there. You land on an island and then you've got to take a ferry across to the mainland. And of course, all people taking the, the ferry are heavily scrutinized. And I managed to work my way. I was told the Americans were doing the CAV experiment. I managed to work my way to within striking distance of a small mission station. And what I discovered was that these blacks were coming in from the bush to this mission station with broken arms or an ulcer on the leg or something like that. And they were ostensibly being treated there, but they were dead by the evening. What was actually going on was that the laboratory had been set up using Lassa fever virus. Now at that time, Lassa fever was, the one, was one of four viruses that could jump the human-animal barrier. And it was a deadly virus. They were trying to create a virus that could be mass-produced and it could be sent out through the World Health Organization to get rid of millions of people in the world. But the Lassa fever virus proved uncontrollable. It killed three scientists who were working there. So the orders came from Washington, burned the place to the ground, and that's exactly what they did within a radius of 100 miles. They bottled up some of these viruses they'd been experimenting with and took them back to the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. There they began again, but again they escaped and killed three more scientists. So they incinerated the whole laboratory, sealed it off and incinerated. The same experiments are now going on in Harvard University right now, but they're not using the Lassa fever virus. That has proved to be tough for them to handle. Instead, the United States government gave millions of dollars to the United States military chemical and bacteriological warfare establishment at Fort Detrick, and they began experimenting with the AIDS virus. I knew about the AIDS three years before the word ever came out in the world, in the United States particularly, because of my field work in Sierra Leone. The British government used their Fort and Down CAB facility. It's easier to get into the Bank of England boss than to get into Fort and Down. All the deadliest viruses in the world are being crafted there. In pursuance of the goal of Global 2000 to decimate the world, Shortly after this experiment had finished at Fort Detrick, the World Health Organization started a massive vaccination campaign. They said, for once and for all, we're going to wipe out the scourge of smallpox. They chose Africa and Brazil, launched a massive vaccination campaign. Immediately, AIDS began to appear. Thousands and thousands of people began dying of a strange new virus, which the World Health Organization then said had come from the bite of a green monkey. They forgot to tell you the green monkey's been there for centuries and he'd been biting people if he ever did for centuries, but no disease of that nature had ever occurred. The World Health Organization deliberately took this virus, which was crafted from a series of animal viruses, including many of these in a sheep, which destroys the brain, which is why you find AIDS patients get dementia probably first before any of the other AIDS-related complex diseases of death. And they began vaccinating innocent people on a massive scale, and they began dying like flies. Why Africa and why Brazil? Because those two countries had the biggest black population in the world. And I want to tell the black people of the United States of America, do not trust the Democrat Party. Do not trust government. Do not believe that government is your friend. To you, they, to them you are dispensable, the same way as we are. Millions of people died. I went through Uganda on an inspection tour, and I saw whole areas decimated where previously there had been small towns and villages. There was not a living soul in sight. And that is going on today. The AIDS epidemic is completely out of hand. It swept the world. It's been swept under the carpet in the United States of America. We were told that this is a disease which is passed by homosexuals. True enough, but that's not the primary cause of it. 
This is a crafted virus that was spread throughout the world to decimate the population. Coming behind them, and we reported this about two years ago in our World Interview News magazine, is the Vibro-19 cholera virus, the deadly killer. You get this cholera in the morning, if it's not immediately treated with massive doses of expensive antibiotics, you'll be dead in a day and a half. This epidemic swept India, carrying away millions of people. I don't know if you've heard of it in the press, I doubt it. Behind that is a deadly strain of malaria, and some of our forces in Somalia contracted this disease. A strain of malaria which acts almost like the HIV virus, it attacks the human immune system. And behind that, the Black Plague. Now, you've had some experience with Black Plague recently. Uh, experiments were conducted in this area and in California uh, with the Black Plague, distributing them, these plague viruses, to definitive areas by means of enfolded scalar waves using extremely low frequency radiation, which was a warfare technique developed in 1934 by the great Soviet virologist V.A. Gertrude. This is not Black Rogers stuff, ladies and gentlemen. This is today's deadly truth. So some of the, end of, of the Indian reservations were targeted and all of a sudden they began dying of Black Plague. And then we were told, well, the harvest mouse droppings are responsible. Well, the harvest mouse has been doing his droppings for centuries, but none of them got the Black Plague before that. But what happened immediately following the so-called population control meeting in Cairo? There was a sudden and violent outbreak of Black Plague in India. And it is still going on and it is not under control. This is all part of the global 2000 mass genocide Plan. I know something about the Black Plague because in my research in the British Museum I discovered that the black Venetian nobility had never, none of their families or members had ever got the Black Plague. Yet the Black Plague, as you know, swept through Europe and killed half of the population of Europe. But none of their families ever got it. So I began seeking for the answers and I found them in the Cairo Museum. So they, people said, well, how come if these things are true, how are they going to protect themselves? They have, they being the committee of 300, their servants and their families, they have the means of protecting themselves by certain types of uh, herbal compounds mixed with sugar. And they also have, of course, the protection of extremely low frequency radiation where using the technology developed by the great virologist Gertrude, who proved that every living thing on this earth has a vibratory cycle, and he was able to measure the vibratory cycle of various deadly viruses and by vibrating them double their cycle you would kill them instantly so that's one of the defensive weapons that these people have got that will kill the plague if they ever get it the same technique of course will kill cancer cells but the medical profession run by the rockefeller family and all the pharmaceutical companies do not want you to know this because when you go in for the doctor he's going to write you a prescription for a chemical drug there's no chemical drug benefit out of extremely low frequency radiation vibration no profit to these people so that's the Global 2000. Decimate the world's population and particularly hit hard the United States middle class. So if you're here, I'm just going to assume that you're aware of Bill Gates' interest in depopulation. I'm not going to add a bunch of clips and weigh this video down by going over all of that. Chances are you've seen it a thousand times. Well, in recent years, Bill Gates has funded the dropping of billions of genetically engineered mosquitoes around the world uh, through a company called Oxitec. And around 1 billion of these genetically engineered mosquitoes were dropped in Florida, I think in 2020, 2021 maybe. And it was in an alleged effort to prevent a disease that actually had zero endemic cases. That was in the video, Eugenics Are Here. And it's worth the watch just to find out how hilariously flawed their safety mechanisms were, or are. So these, these mosquitoes were only, only genetically modified, 
with fluorescent markers uh, to glow in the dark under certain type of light. And they are a run-up to what is called a gene drive. Gene drives are the ultimate depopulation device. They break normal 50% Mendelian inheritance and they spread at a 100% rate. And without every carrier of, these, of this gene drive gene going extinct, it will eventually spread through the entire population, generally causing infertility uh, or extinction. But without getting into the weeds, not necessarily. And these things spread exponentially over generations. So you only need a very small introductory uh, group of genetically modified specimens to, within a few generations, infect most of the species, if not all. This ability to drive a gene to cause depopulation has been proposed by many governments around the world as a method to eliminate uh, undesirable invasive species. The government of New Zealand specifically has a program called the Predator Free 2030 or the Predator Free 2040 program, something like that. And that's a plan to use gene drives to exterminate eight species of mammals, including rats and possums. And this is despite the fact that their creator, the creator of the gene drive, Kevin Esvelt said that is near impossible to contain a gene drive and that once one is released, they would likely spread through the entire world. Gates and his foundation consistently influence national policies and are key players in formulating global policy. Meanwhile, governments and even the FBI are utterly unprepared for this technology to the extent that they're even aware of it. One issue that really grabbed me as, as urgent uh, was were issues related to population, uh, reproductive health. But did you come to reproductive issues as an intellectual? When I was growing up, my parents were always involved in various uh, uh, volunteer things. My dad was uh, head of Planned Parenthood. And so let's look at each one of these and see how we can get this down to zero. Uh, probably one of these numbers is going to have to get pretty near to zero. Now uh, that's back from high school algebra, but let's, let's take a look. Uh, first, we've got population. Uh, the world today has 6.8 billion people. That's headed up to about 9 billion. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, health care, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15 percent. The benefits there in terms of reducing sickness, reducing the population growth, it really allows the society a chance to take care of itself uh, once you've made that intervention. A gene drive is a method of altering a gene so that it is inherited at a greater than natural rate. In its simplest form, this is a 100% transference of the imposed gene. Thus, a CRISPR gene drive combines these two technologies to enable the creation of a gene sequences which have the potential to make a species extinct. Authority can't keep up. It's just too slow. So we've been trying to do the stopgap measures. We've been first trying to let all the scientists know about the danger. I spent I spend a lot of time talking to iGEM, which is an international genetically engineered machines competition, a bunch of talented undergrads and even high school students who play about with genetically engineered organisms. Very important that they understand that they should not insert the CRISPR system 
and instructions for targeting it into the same place that it targets. Because you do that in a sexually reproducing organism, you just made a CRISPR gene drive, boom, gone. Now, yes, you run the risk that someone, one of them is going to do this deliberately. Eventually, that's going to happen. We have to push it off for long enough so that we can do some good with the technology first. The strong version of the precautionary principle says, don't do anything until you can understand all of the consequences. And that's fine as long as you get to stay where you are if you do nothing. But that's not the world we live in. It might seem that way to some people, but that's not the world we live in. Civilization is not sustainable. We need continued invention. We need new technologies because otherwise we're eroding our natural resource base and we have to invent our way out of it. There's no other choice. We've passed the point of no return. There's too many people. We need to be more efficient. We need new technologies and they have to be ever more powerful, but that's a double-edged sword. How do you ensure that we use them wisely? How do you ensure that we don't accidentally open a technological box that destroys us all? They're out there. There are some in biology. I'm not going to talk about it further, but they're out there. Most organisms have two copies of every given gene. And if they're different, each of them has a 50% chance of being inherited by offspring. So the way a lot of gene drives work is that they can distort inheritance so that they're more likely to end up in any offspring that occur. And that's interesting because normally when we engineer an organism, no matter how we do it, through selective breeding like dogs, or through now we have CRISPR that lets us precisely edit essentially any DNA sequence we want in the genome of almost any organism, either way we're tinkering with something that evolved over many, many, many generations to optimize reproduction in its ancestral habitat. Meaning you mess with it in any way, put it back in that habitat, and we've almost certainly broken it in some way. And the upshot of that is we can't engineer things, put them in the wild, and have them stick around. Natural selection beats us. But with a gene drive, if it's more than, if it's more likely than normal to be inherited, it can decrease the fitness of the organism and still spread in a population. Present, there are no guidelines that speak specifically to gene drives, and we'll discuss that in a few minutes. But relevant U.S. guidelines and technical documents are not yet sufficient on their own to guide ecological risk assessment for gene drive technology. This is a gap that we did identify. But we concluded that existing mechanisms of governance may be inadequate to address potential immediate and long-term environmental and public health consequences because they don't consider gene drives intentional spread. They don't consider gene drives potential irreversible effect on ecosystems. Often they lack clarity in the jurisdiction of their oversight and who it is that is responsible for which components of oversight. Most of them provide no structure for public engagement, and those that do have insufficient structures for public engagement. And they don't address the potential for misuse. On leaving Microsoft, Bill Gates bought $23 million of Monsanto shares. Globally, he now promotes GMOs and a vaccines collection he calls the solution for the world. Gates has been recorded explaining this solution is actually to cut the world's population. Now, the world today has 6.8 billion people that's headed up to about 9 billion. Now, if we do a really great job, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15 percent. The density in the poor areas 
is greater than they can uh, grow the food. The benefits there in terms of reducing the population growth. The only vaccines that reduce the population, notes the site Prison Planet, are ones that sterilize people. The BBC says his foundation's funding big sterilization programs such as this one that blasts men's scrotums with ultrasound to damage the sperm. Here Gates actually calls for the so-called death panels to decide whether folks should live or whether, as he puts it, they have no benefit whatsoever. And a lack of willingness to say, you know, is spending a million dollars on that last three months of life for that patient, would it be better to see which ones actually have no benefit whatsoever? But that's called the death panel. Uh, and you're not supposed to have that discussion. Anthony Gates actually brags he's doing God's work. The boss of Goldman Sachs said exactly the same thing while sending millions into starvation. What the heck is going on? His father was one of the main grandfathers of the whole entire eugenics movement here inside the United States. And it's still going strong today. My dad was uh, head of Planned Parenthood. And it was very controversial. And Bill Gates is here once again pushing the GMOs and everything else that is also reducing the population because that's what he says. If we do a good enough job with vaccinations and everything, we'll be able to reduce the population. The polio vaccines now are the number one cause of polio. There's no question that Bill Gates is not doing God's work. And if he is doing God's work, I would ask which God? Yeah, how have we moved to open plans to take away our water, hoarding food and population controls? They speak to us as if we are peon peasants in medieval times and they are the kings, queens and nobles. Why did they target the low income portions? Yeah, May 25th, over 2 million people across 48 states and 6 continents marched against Monsanto. What do you make of the company refusing to talk to us because we covered the march? They can't stand up to the facts. They wouldn't come on this show. I would love to debate a Monsanto employee and show them that email. I mean, what would they say? They have nothing. They go into these poor communities and then, of course, reduced yields. So what happens to these farmers? They end up killing themselves by drinking the biopesticides that Monsanto gave them. But still, you would be irrevocably changing the world. You'd be committing mass genocide. I mean, a normal person might object to something like that. Well, maybe not if you preserved the genome. For example, say in the world's largest DNA repository, or maybe several such repositories. You know, thank God the digital world is sort of giving us infinite storage and computation because uh, geneticists are one of the few people who can fill up those disks. And we're uh, doing it. <laughs> uh, so thank you for all of your data uh, that will allow these cloud computing facilities to grow with, with no end in sight. They have a great future. Uh, now, yeah. now you have a backup for all the damage you caused. You've preserved the building blocks of each individual for posterity in a way that even the ancient Egyptians' pharaohs never realized. You've saved people from immense suffering of a Malthusian catastrophe, and while many people will be unable to enjoy a traditional family, nobody really wants those anymore anyway. And really, if they truly, truly desire it, you can sell them back their own fertility at a dear price. You will peacefully sunset the declining population in comfort while granting them a sort of pseudo-immortality as gene sequences stored on silicon chip. The truth that Bill Gates is that he has a depopulation agenda and he uses vaccines to scare you that you may be sick. What he says about vaccines are lies. 
Do you know what chemicals are inserted in the vaccines? If not, we will tell you in the next clip. Bill Gates works for the elite and the truth about vaccines is that it actually makes you sick. Reduces sperm count. Poisoning. And sterilization. Bill Gates makes an illusion that he is for the people. Do not fall for his deceit. Remember, he has a hidden agenda. Vaccines actually distribute diseases among the masses and they use fear tactics to scare you into having them inject toxic chemicals inside your skin or veins. President George Herbert Walker Bush calls Dr. Fauci a hero, and we all subscribe to that. I think of Dr. Fauci. Probably never heard of him. And heard of him. He's a very fine research, top doctor at National Institute of Health, working hard doing something about research on this disease of AIDS. I came up with the idea that we should hold a special session of the Security Council on HIV-AIDS. I was told by everyone, including my own staff, you can't do this, it's not done, it's not in the UN Charter. And I said, but AIDS is a security issue because it's destroying the security, the stability of countries. I call to order this uh, first meeting of the United Nations Security Council in the 21st century. When 10 people in Sub-Saharan Africa are infected every minute, when 11 million children have... It was the first time that the Security Council debated on something that was not, let's say, war and peace. When a single disease threatens everything from economics to peacekeeping, that was a breakthrough because it opened so many doors and presence. Prime Minister say, oh, it was debated in the Security Council. This must be a serious problem. When I came to Congress, my first statement on the floor was, I've come here to fight HIV and AIDS. As the President arrived for his State of the Union speech, everyone expected him to issue an ultimatum to Saddam Hussein. They were not prepared for what came first. Today on the continent of Africa, nearly 30 million people have the AIDS virus. Only 50,000 AIDS victims, only 50,000 are receiving the medicine they need. I ask the Congress to commit $15 billion over the next five years, including nearly $10 billion in new money, to turn the tide against AIDS in the most afflicted nations of Africa and the Caribbean. The President announced the initiative in Washington and raised the hope that earlier treatment and prevention would soon lead to the beginning of the end of AIDS. You could have imagined that we'd be talking about the real possibility of an AIDS-free generation. But that's what we're talking about. That's why we're here. The ultimate tool will be a vaccine, and scientists are making great progress. Good morning. Well, I am here today to make it absolutely clear. The United States is committed and will remain committed to achieving an AIDS-free generation. We will not back off. We will not back down. We will fight for the resources necessary to achieve this historic milestone. Finally, as you I'm sure have read in the papers, given the fact that we now have the virus in our hands, it is quite possible, in fact it's invariable, that we will develop a vaccine for AIDS. Why do you believe that HIV does cause AIDS? Because that's all the information that I've been given. Because we've never been taught anything different. We have uh, we didn't heard it. Because that's what the scientific community has told us. Scientists are supposed to observe, experiment, and reason from what they observe. They're not supposed to grab hold of an idea and cling to it 
and adjust everything else in their perceptions to fit that idea. I happen to be one now of the few people who was there literally from the very first week that this was recognized as a new disease. Let's talk about HIV. Right. When did people first realize that people were getting um, HIV and then AIDS? Uh, that was in the early 80s, I suppose. But why did it take scientists so long to figure out what, what was causing HIV and then how to prevent HIV from becoming AIDS? Why did that take well, so long? Well, I'll answer your first question. It, we first became aware of it in a report of the MMWR from the CDC on June 4th of 1981, followed by one in July 5th, 1981, of the first cases from Los Angeles and then from New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. I don't think at all that it was a long time before we found out what it was. Uh, the first cases were recognized, even though it was around probably 10 years before. In the summer of 1981, the virus was discovered in the spring of 1983 and proven to be the cause. Discovered of by whom? By, uh, by Francois Barret, Sinoussi, and uh, Now, and Luc was Montagnier. the Nobel Prize awarded to people who... Yes, yes. It, it, it was discovered by one group in France, but proven definitively to be the cause of AIDS by Bob Gallo here when okay. he was at the NIH. Did they both win the Nobel Prize? Uh, Francois Barre-Sinoussi and, uh, and Luc Montagnier won the Nobel Prize. Bob Gallo did not. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. First, the probable cause of AIDS has been found, a variant of a known human cancer virus. Second, not only has the agent been identified, but a new process has been developed to mass-produce this virus. Thirdly, with discovery of both the virus and this new process, we now have a blood test for AIDS. With the blood test, we can identify AIDS victims with essentially 100% certainty. ...muddy trails surrounding HIV. With the death of Luc Montagnier, Nobel Prize winner for discovery of HIV, and outspoken scientists against these current injections, the news has stirred up the past headlines of the deaths of inordinate numbers of HIV scientists. There was a plane crash that felled a team 100 persons strong of some of the brightest AIDS researchers over Ukraine in 2014 and the succession of passing of nearly all the remaining scientists from the early days of HIV discovery, save Fauci. Fauci, who's been heading the NIAID since the ironic year of 1984 and caught irrefutably lying on record, has managed to survive decades of protests from numerous scientists and professionals, risking their own careers and more to speak out against his alleged corruption. Now these deceased scientists were not young, and one could do little but make conjecture. But I, for one, have had enough of coincidences to last the millennium and state again that we've indeed entered deeper into the establishment of a system that no longer feels the need to cover its dark side. Even the artist formerly known as Prince, Perry, went on stage to plead the case to rush testing for HIV. Though we've been locked inside for the better part of two years, that groundwork was laid, knowingly or not, when Harry took up the cause by testing on camera in 2016. As coronavirus nears its bitter end, unless of course you're in Israel where you can look forward to testing out a new novel injection, as we've convinced the hypnotized they might have any manner of ticking time bomb inside them and never know it. After we've further accustomed people to test morning, noon, and night for that unknown. Now that more than 10 billion doses of special sauce have been jabbed into bodies worldwide, and there's none left but Fauci to find the narrative of old, there's a sudden unsung potential of asymptomatic people around, walking around with HIV who never knew it. Like with heart failure, HIV is receiving an aggressive remarketing, one that keeps the fear machine well-oiled. And in its wake, we can only ask, what in God's name have they done to those injected? When I was looking at this data with our team the other night, 
It was reminiscent of 34 years ago in 1986 when we were struggling for drugs for HIV. And we had nothing. And there was a lot of anecdotal reports about things that maybe they were, maybe not. People were taking different kinds of drugs. And we did the first randomized placebo-controlled trial with AZT, which turned out to give an effect that was modest. In 1987, the war on AIDS took another drastic turn for the worse. AZT, a toxic chemotherapy deemed too poisonous for cancer treatment, was approved to treat symptomatic and asymptomatic HIV patients in an attempt to kill the virus that causes AIDS. AZT is a DNA chain terminator, a poison designed to randomly destroy the DNA synthesis of reproducing cells. It was initially developed to treat leukemia victims, but after animal testing, the FDA determined that it was too toxic for use in human beings and banned it. But in 1987, when the AIDS scare hit its height, the FDA was pressured into approving the drug for use for the first time in human beings, even for people who were healthy and showed no sign of AIDS. AZT is highly mutagenic, meaning that it destroys the genes and cells and has been shown to cause cancer in rodents. It targets the bone marrow where B lymphocyte blood cells are being made. These are the very cells an AIDS patient needs most for immunity. AZT destroys randomly bone marrow, kidneys, liver, intestines, muscle tissue, the brain and central nervous system. Peter Duesberg claims AZT actually causes AIDS itself. AZT deaths does directly causing AIDS and defining diseases. You know, AIDS is a lot of the things, but it doesn't cause Kaposi's sarcoma or anything, but it does cause immunodeficiency. It was designed to do that. It was designed to kill human cells. In fact, the manufacturer says that uh, specifically that it can cause uh, AIDS-like diseases. The manufacturer, that is Spirits Welcome, says it is often difficult to distinguish adverse events possibly associated with pseudobudin or pseudobudin administration, which is ACT, from underlying signs of HIV disease. In other words, even they acknowledge, not just this, but that, CDV, that ACT causes AIDS or AIDS-defining diseases. Whenever you have clear-cut evidence that a drug works, you have an ethical obligation to immediately let the people who are in the placebo group know so that they could have access. And all of the other trials that are taking place now have a new standard of care. So we would have normally waited several days until the data gets further dot the I and cross the T. But the data are not going to change. Some of the numbers may change a little, but the, but the conclusion will not change. In his book, Poison by Prescription, journalist John Lawrenson explains how AZT tests conducted by the FDA and Burroughs Welcome, the manufacturer, were scientifically sloppy and outright fraudulent. During the experiments, patients taking AZT became anemic, suffered low white blood cell counts accompanied by vomiting. Over half had to have blood transfusions. Twenty percent were transfused several times. Despite a warning by FDA toxicology analyst Harvey Chernoff, that AZT not be approved, the FDA was pressured by AIDS activist organizations to lift the ban and hundreds of thousands of people began taking AZT, even though AZT cannot cure AIDS and is only supposed to slow down the progression. The mortality rate trended towards being better in the sense of less deaths in the remdesivir group. 8% versus 11% in the placebo group. 
It has not yet reached statistical significance, but the data needs to be further analyzed. The logic behind AZT treatment is flawed, even if one believes HIV causes AIDS, because HIV only infects about one T-cell in 1,000. 999 healthy T-cells must die to kill the one cell that is infected, and this can only happen early on before HIV becomes dormant and is still making DNA. Yet AIDS patients are given AZT for months on into years, randomly destroying DNA in all parts of the body. AZT is expensive and costs between $8,000 and $12,000 a year, most of which is paid for directly or indirectly by the taxpayer. Burroughs Welcome, now Glaxo Welcome, the manufacturer, has generated sales over $1 billion a year with AZT. Because of rules allowed by the FDA, a bottle of AZT that costs about $5 to make can be sold for over $500 as a prescription, and much of this markup is being subsidized by the taxpayer. The treatment causes a very similar condition we would expect from an AIDS patient. That's why nobody noticed that there was something wrong with the treatment. I remember in 1992, after I first tested positive, I became involved in an organization called Women at Risk. There were 11 of us at the time on the board and involved in the group. All of us except three were on the medications. In the year and a half that I was involved with Women at Risk, every single woman in that organization on the drugs died. Every single one except the three of us who weren't taking them. We weren't just given handfuls of ACT, we demanded it. We considered the FDA not giving us these things as being anti-gay instead of being responsible. And so we went and we lobbied and we pushed for all these things and we didn't think clearly about what it was we were asking for. It's like that saying, be, caref be careful what you ask for, it may come to pass. Whenever you have clear-cut evidence that a drug works, you have an ethical obligation to immediately let the people who are in the placebo group know so that they can have access. And all of the other trials that are taking place now have a new standard of care. So we would have normally waited further to dot the I and cross the T, but the data are not going to change. Some of the numbers may change a little, but the, but the conclusion will not change. We die! ACTUP wanted to speed up the approval process for new drugs. One of our greatest demonstrations and most famous was at the FDA. And it was uh, over a thousand demonstrators, almost all people with HIV, uh, uh, demanding to be heard. I know that there are drugs out there that can save my life, and I want to know why they're not being tested more quickly. I began to get beyond the rhetoric and the theater of the demonstrations and to really listen to what it is that they were saying. So I invited a group of them up to my conference room and we spent a couple of hours talking about their concerns. And again, it just confirmed in my own mind that most of their concerns were really quite valid. 
So to explain this for people that might be new to this particular kind of fraud, here's how it works. You create a fake activist group to push an agenda seemingly on behalf of society or an oppressed minority when in fact you're controlling that group for your own purposes. Now, does that mean that everybody who was ever a member of ACT UP or ever went to a demonstration was in on it, in on the, on the game? And the answer is no, because part of the game of creating these fake groups is also to attract legitimate people, mislead them, and weaponize them. And that's exactly what the drug companies did with ACT UP. Now, the question is, were they playing Tony Fauci, or was Tony Fauci playing along? Let's take a, a close look at an in-depth narrative he gave about his experience with ACT UP. Watch his body language, and you tell me. Very early on in the course of this pandemic, the activists uh, were making extremely good points about the uniqueness of this, the need to do more, the need to be less rigid in our regulatory approaches towards the approval and testing of new drugs, and the rigidity and lack of flexibility in how we design clinical trials, all of which were the classical way to approach drug development, therapeutic developments, clinical trials, and FDA approval. Um, they wanted to get our attention so they would do it in a very theatrical way, and they scared a lot, because for the most part, the scientific community and the regulatory community are conservative. And I say conservative, I don't mean conservative in an ideological, political way, but conservative in their approach towards science. It's nice to, that people are interested who are not scientists, but leave them out of it and let us scientists make the decision. So they didn't pay much attention to the uh, activists. I, for one reason or other, began reading intensively what they were writing, and even though when they were demonstrating and closing down Wall Street and invading St. Patrick's Cathedral and doing things like that, looking very eccentric and scary to some people, I try to phase that out and just listen to what they said and re read what they wrote, and they were making perfect sense. So since I was always out there as a government official, they equated me, my face, my name, with the federal government. So they began to demonstrate against the NIH. And right here on our campus, they, you know, came in, invaded the campus, smoke bombs, you know, wanting to get arrested. And I made probably the best decision in my interaction with community is that I agreed with what they were saying. We weren't just given handfuls of ACT, we demanded it. We didn't think clearly about what it was we were asking for. It's like that saying, be, caref be careful what you ask for, it may come to pass. The Wellcome Foundation, UK manufacturer of AZT, saw its shares spiral upwards. AZT was to be the new wonder drug. Then, in 1989, after further trials were terminated early in the United States because results looked promising, it was announced that AZT could be used not only on people with AIDS diseases, but in a much larger group, with HIV and low immune cell counts, but no other symptoms. Welcome shares soared to new heights, adding £1.4 billion to the company's UK stock market value in one day. So, we went to war, we passed the Patriot Act, 
and immediately started giving $2 billion a year to bioweapons development. The Pentagon didn't want to do it because it was nervous about the legality, because it was a death penalty to violate the Geneva Convention. Oh, you would have been committing a, you know, a war crime, even if somebody told you it was okay. It wasn't. And so they funneled it through DITRA and DARPA. They funneled all of that money to NIH, to NIAID, which became the primary spear tip of bioweapons development. So Tony Fauci became the bioweapons czar in 2001. His budget went up by $2.2 billion. He was personally given a 68% raise from the military. That's why he was the highest paid individual in the federal government, because he was getting this 68% bonus every year from the military. But it meant that he could not stop. And the thing the military wanted was gain-of-function studies, where they could take wild viruses and turn them into bioweapons. And bioweapons development always includes vaccine development. Because unlike chemical weapons, with bioweapons, there's always blowback. It's called the boomerang effect. If you give your enemy bubonic plague, your guys are going to get it first, too. They're going to get it quickly. So the only way you can deploy a bioweapons is if you have already developed a vaccine. So the race is to develop a vaccine simultaneously with bioweapons, and then you can deploy the bioweapons, and your enemy will take a couple of years to develop the vaccine. And you can inoculate all of your team. Um, so in 2014, three of Tony Fauci's bugs escaped from federal labs. And they, their escapes were public, and it caused a huge uh, brouhaha. There were Senate hearings, and people were immensely upset. And, uh, um, and 300 scientists wrote, letter, wrote a petition to President Obama saying, you have to shut down Tony Fauci. He's going to cause a global pandemic. Obama declared a moratorium and told Fauci, ordered Fauci to shut down the 18 studies he was then doing. As I show in my book, he didn't do it. He instead took that science and he moved it offshore to the Wuhan lab and to the Ukraine. And when he did that, he was not the only one who did it. Tony Fauci spent about $29 million on gain-of-function science in Wuhan. But the CIA spent over $100 million. And the military spent about that much, too, about $64 million. And they, the CIA funneled the money, most of it through USAID. Um, but they also, the CIA, as we now know, was also running this organization called the EcoHealth Alliance, which Fauci was funneling his money through. It was like a laundromat where they funneled uh, federal money so that it was so that their fingerprints would not be would not be visible on them. Senator, with all due respect, I disagree with so many of the things that you've said. You're still unwilling to admit that they gained in function, they gained in lethality. According to the definition that is currently <laughs> operable, we're not going to get anywhere close to trying to prevent another lab leak of this dangerous sort of experiment. You won't admit that it's dangerous, and for that lack of judgment, I think it's time that you resign. <laughs> Project Veritas has obtained never-before-seen military documents regarding the origins of COVID-19, gain-of-function research, vaccines, potential treatments which have been suppressed, and the government's effort to conceal all of this. Dr. Anthony Fauci has testified many times before Congress stating that the U.S. government was never involved in gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Will you today finally take some responsibility for funding gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator, with all due respect, I disagree with so many of the things that you've said. Gain, first of all, gain of function 
is a very nebulous term. But the thing is, is you're still unwilling to admit that they gained in function when they say they became sicker. They gained in lethality. It's a new virus. That's not gain of function? According to the definition that is currently <laughs> operable, we're not going to get anywhere close to trying to prevent another lab leak of this dangerous sort of experiment. You won't admit well, that it's dangerous, and for that lack of judgment, I think it's time that you resign. You have said that I am unwilling to take any responsibility for the current pandemic. I have no responsibility for the current pandemic. That assertion is based on the NIH's definition of gain of function. However, the documents we've obtained refute that. The documents in question stem from a report of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, better known as DARPA, which were hidden in a top-secret share drive. But what is DARPA? They are an agency under the U.S. Department of Defense, which facilitates research and technology with potential military applications. Dr. Stephen Walker was the director of DARPA at the time of the EcoHealth Alliance proposal. A source sent us this video of Dr. Walker talking about research they were exploring related to mRNA technology and its potential application with military personnel in the field. At DARPA, about five or six years ago, we stood up an office called the Biotechnology Office, and the real purpose of that was to understand how biology worked and then build design, uh, design build and test cycles where you could um, engineer microorganisms to do things that you want to do. Though the main report regarding the EcoHealth Alliance proposal leaked on the internet a couple of months ago, it has remained unverified until now. Project Veritas has obtained a separate report to the Inspector General of the Department of Defense, written by the U.S. Marine Corps Major Joseph Murphy, a former DARPA fellow. Major Murphy makes claims in his report to the Inspector General that, if true, could be damning to the official narrative that has been played out to the world over the past two years. Major Murphy's report states that EcoHealth Alliance approached DARPA in March 2018 seeking funding to conduct gain-of-function research of bat-borne coronaviruses. The proposal was named Project Diffuse. Violate the gain-of-function moratorium, despite EcoHealth's position that it would not. According to the documents, the NIAID, under the direction of Dr. Fauci, did not reject the proposal. They went ahead with the research at Wuhan and several sites across the U.S. Dr. Fauci has repeatedly maintained his position, under oath, that the NIH and NIAID have not been involved in gain-of-function research with the EcoHealth Alliance program. This appears to be contradictory to Major Murphy's analysis and the rejection from the Biological Technologies Office at DARPA. Major Murphy's report goes on to detail great concern over the COVID-19 gain-of-function program, the concealment of documents, the suppression of potential curatives like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, and the mRNA vaccines. To be clear, Major Murphy is not the source of our reporting. As far as we're aware, he has done nothing that violates his oath of service to our country. We were able to track him down, and though he couldn't go into detail about the hidden documents, he did offer this heartfelt statement. I offer no comments on the investigation or internal Marine Corps deliberations. I offer a brief comment to those that desire answers and to those that withhold them. To those seeking answers, I offer encouragement. There are good people striving for the truth, working together in and out of government, and they succeed. To those that withhold, I pray for you. Find the moral courage to come forward. Don't let a lie be our legacy to posterity. People will forgive. A commitment to truth is in the heart of this nation. Semper Fi. Project Veritas reached out to DARPA for comment regarding the hidden documents and spoke with the Chief of Communications, Jared Adams. It doesn't sound normal to me. No, like I said, if, it, if something resides in a classified setting, then it should be appropriately marked. It was unmarked documents that reside in a classified, in a classified space, no. Um, that, like I said, that doesn't, doesn't sound like, I mean, it's, it's not a good practice to put unmarked materials in, um, you know, in a, in a classified space, but there may be there may be cause to because 
um, something is determined to be classified, um, but it wasn't you know, originally marked appropriately. I'd be happy, Robert, honestly, to investigate and you know, talk to the people who would own this document within the agency, ideally the, you know, the director of the biological technologies office or the deputy director of that office and try to ascertain you know, why it was the case. So here's the question. If the Department of Defense, the same people who make our nuclear arsenal, felt this research was too dangerous to proceed with, why in the world did the NIH, NIAID, and EcoHealth Alliance recklessly disregard the risks involved? Did they purposefully change the definition of gain of function in order to bypass the moratorium? Further, who at DARPA made the decision to bury the original report that could have raised red flags to the Pentagon, the White House, or Congress, which may have prevented this entire pandemic that has led to the deaths of 5.4 million people worldwide? caused much pain and suffering to many millions more. You know why they are wanting to decrease the population down to 500 million people? The answer is obviously simple. They want to have a small population, since a smaller population is easier to control than it is 7 billion people. The population may be already be decreasing as we speak. And now... Some people assume that we are just going back to some other world, which is Uh, let's say fiction, it will not happen. Um, see, see, uh, cut, which we have now, um, is much too strong uh, in order not to leave traces. We're now in the early stages of the fourth industrial revolution, which is bringing together digital, physical, and biological systems. One of the features of the fourth industrial revolution is that it doesn't change what we are doing. Aujourd'hui, au bout de ça, on parle de puces qu'on pourra s'implanter, ce sera quand ça Certainement dans les dix années à venir. Et d'abord, on va les implanter dans nos vêtements, hein, c'est-à-dire wearables, comme on le dit. Et après, on pourrait s'imaginer qu'on les implante dans nos cerveaux ou dans notre peau. Et à la fin, peut-être il y a une communication directe entre notre cerveau et le monde digital. Ce que nous voyons, c'est une sorte de fusion du monde physique, digital of this first uh, industrial revolution is it doesn't change what you are doing it changes you if you take a genetic editing it changes you if you take a genetic editing our bodies will be so high-tech we won't be able to really distinguish between what's natural and what's artificial the very idea of human being some sort of natural concept is really going to change Internet of Bodies, or IOB, is, um, is actually an ecosystem. It's a bunch of devices that are connected to the internet that contain software and that either collect personal health data about you or can alter the body's function. Can alter the body's function. We think of the Internet of Bodies as this collection of all these devices as well as all the data that the devices are gathering about you. There are pills now that have an electronic sensor that let a healthcare provider know whether you have taken the medication. There's the cyber risk of, of uh, you know, of an actor potentially um, hacking into the system. You put it underneath your skin, and what that tells you is that there are chemical reactions going on inside the body, and that signal means you're going to have symptoms tomorrow. Wow. There's an actual transmitter in that? Yeah, it's like a check engine light. They created her to promote human-to-machine empathy and compassion. She's appeared on late-night shows and the cover of fashion magazines. Sophia was even given legal citizenship in Saudi Arabia and appointed the UN's first non-human innovation champion. Her new role is in the healthcare sector, taking temperatures with a thermal camera on her chest or leading morning exercise with the elderly. 
social robots like me can help take care of the sick or elderly in many kinds of healthcare and medical uses. I can help communicate, give therapy, and provide social stimulation even in difficult situations. In Sweden, the microchips are already here. The microchip implants use the same technology that's in contact with credit cards, which have made cash pretty much obsolete in Sweden. No cash. At this tech fair, a chipping event for those on the cutting edge, merging their hands with this new technology. I thought it would be fun, right? Central banks have, like the Bank of England, already prepared their microchip implant RFID chip to be implanted under your skin. Um, and why is the sudden discussion about universal basic income from all the grassroots and inverted commas movements and billionaires? Oh, universal basic income is the bribe for you to accept the microchip. We're still essentially the banging the rocks together stage for this sort of stuff. And you haven't really seen anything yet. This is closer to this powder sized chip. Um, and it's a seed crystals. This is a small thing. It's something called the Mu chip from Hitachi. It's the smallest commercially available RFID system in the world. And can be pulse powered by radio waves. It doesn't require a battery. You can literally scatter this stuff like dust or embed it into a sheet of paper. And you know what the really interesting thing about this technology is? This was commercially released 10 years ago. So the inevitability of smart dust. So what is smart dust? Well, smart dust, of course, isn't a new concept. It's the originated with DARPA back in the 90s. And it's general purpose computing, sensors, wireless network, networking, all bundled up into millimeter scale sensor modes, drifting in the air currents, flecks of computing power settling on your skin, ingested, monitoring you inside and out. You're a neuroscience company, and you're working to build basically an interface to the brain. Yeah. Electrode to neuron interface at a micro level. Okay, what is that? Like, I'm going to have like a plug in my head that's going to fit into a hard drive? Like, or how does that work? Yeah, yeah. A chip and a bunch of tiny wires. This, this would be implanted, so you're putting And it would do what? Could you input? Could you download Jim? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> the long-term aspiration of Neuralink was would be to achieve a symbiosis with uh, artificial intelligence. This project started because the government in developing better ways for us to connect to the brain. What are the physical processes we could use? What are the techniques we, that might give us the ability to communicate with the brain through the skull? So we started this in, in a very exploratory phase, and we looked at how we might be able to use magnetic fields and how we might be able to use light. Both of these things can penetrate the skull, would allow us to record and stimulate the brain. As the magnet turns on, the flies are stimulated, so we're working to stimulate their brain uh, using nanoparticles that I've already injected into the flies. And using nanoparticles that I've already injected into the flies. So if we attach a specific drug to the nanoparticles mm -hmm. here, um, we could put it in the entire body. What we've designed, and we've done this very, very quietly, but um, we're glad to now release it to the world, is this idea of teslaphoresis, which is a discovery we made several years ago, and we've been developing it. Teslaphoresis is, the simplest way to understand it, is self-assembly at a distance, just long-distance assembly of, of materials. And what we did was, uh, because we're at Rice, we had plenty of nanotubes around, so we uh, decided to use nanotubes, and what we discovered was that these nanotubes can actually string together and form wires by themselves under this electric field. You can convert the carbohydrates that are within bread to graphene, or we can do it on a coconut. So you can take a coconut and convert that into graphene. Now, why would we want to have something like this? This is all conductive, and so it can conduct electricity. So what we can do now is we can make electronics embedded within fabrics and make electronics embedded within wood. Why would one want edible electronics? Well, first of all, let me start with 
Very often we don't see the advantage of something early on, but when we make it available, people start seeing the real advantage. So can you even take, have electronics embedded on food and then say, use this as a heat circuit to heat the food more easily? If there's say an RFID tag written onto this potato, where has it been? How long has it been stored? Where did, where, what, what's its country of origin and its city of origin? And what path did it go to to get to your table? All that can be embedded not on a separate tag that's placed on the food, but directly on the food itself. And these can also have sensors. Just as you don't see all of your data going through NSA's X key score to be logged and saved, you will not see the quantum computers at work. One must have education and a license to use potentially fatal machinery such as a car a tool for travel, but there is no training or license to be online, to use the internet, which has proven time again is fatal, when in the hands of the ignorant. This ignorance is why many truth speakers, researchers, leakers and anons are jailed and killed. Soon you will not have the option of choice. Due to your surrender of the only thing separating you from the dung beetle, free will, we will all be forced to use their so-called encrypted and secured systems. Why has everything society depends on been thrust onto the internet over the last 20 years? Banking is rarely done with cash, it is done electronically, through apps, convenient. Shopping is done online, payments done online, applications done online, communication done online. Filing your taxes, receiving medical records, all done online. You have all been funneled into a life of total dependence to the internet. Why do you think that is? Is it not obvious? How do you control everyone in the world when they think they are in different countries? One platform. How do you gain control over all aspects of every individual's life? one platform that records and saves all data from each individual. People think they are free. Fools and oblivious to the fact that every time they press a button on their keyboard it is logged and recorded. It is stamped with the date, time and location. People ignore the fact that this is how it works, and never wonder why. You think of yourself as individual human beings. The elite think of you as product product whose expiration dates are soon coming up. You have all been funneled into the elite's paths as the elite open them up for you, and this will be no different. But it will be far worse as it is one more crucial step to the finalization of the new world order, what some call the beast system. Already we see the owners of all technology working diligently on this project. All the big boys are involved, including MIT, naturally, Georgia Tech. Cambridge, University of Maryland, Nanjing University, University College of London, University of Tokyo, Chinese Academy of Sciences, Niels Bohr Institute, University of Basel and Bristol University, Yale and Berkeley of course, and more. Lockheed Martin, the National Security Agency, AT&T, Airbus, and Fujitsu, Microsoft and Intel have joined Alibaba, Google, IBM, Tencent and a host of academic and national research labs including China, the European Commission, Russia and the US in a quest to build working quantum computing hardware and software. Once again, we see the main elite strongholds working all together to bring this one system into place. And some people still think these countries are separate entities. Silly sleepers.
Everything is connected already thanks to the internet. So if one country has the quantum experience up and running, every country is subject to it. Their info will simply be routed through that system until theirs is finalized. We have already seen them beginning to integrate this with cryptocurrencies. Once quantum computing is up everything that was encrypted before will no longer be encrypted. So all of you who jumped on the crypto bandwagon will be fully exposed which will force you to take a crypto they offer which is secured through quantum encryption. It is also obvious we really hope you get it this time. They will provide the cryptocurrency with the only encryptions they provide, because of this there can be no privacy from the elite, they must know all. Nothing is new. Nothing changes because the people do nothing to stop it. The companies making the encryptions are the same ones that have been exposed for putting backdoors and spyware they make into the devices, and platforms everyone uses. We have discussed in great detail the elite's need for your data and why governments collect it all. We have exposed the documents detailing the labeling of citizens, the agenda of the elite for depopulation and slave population, how they have made all of these platforms such as Google, Facebook, Twitter and the like, simply to collect your data. These things have been going on and growing and becoming more and more over the years, and this quantum computing is one more giant step into life under the big brown eye of the elite. We must be vigilant. Realize what it is you are actually giving to them. You hand them your soul on a silver platter expecting they won't destroy it. When that is the only reason they do all that they do. Wake the fuck up already. Quantum computers are far different from the computers we know today, now called classical computers. We have discussed the differences and capabilities before and will simply remind you that this is a different animal entirely. We cannot treat it or think of it as another classical computer, just as we cannot treat 5G as another version of the internet when it comes. This will be different from anything the public has known before, and the lack of education on the current systems will only further the gap in knowledge when the swap takes place. China is about to launch the Jinan project, what it claims is the world's first unhackable quantum network, and a major milestone in the development of quantum technology. Zif, assistant director of the Jinan Institute of Quantum Technology stated, we plan to use the network for national defense finance and other fields, and hope to spread it out as a pilot that if successful can be used across China and the whole world. Naturally the first on the list is defense. Technology is used for war, destruction, to take things from you, not the other way around. Dreamers state how good technology is because of what could be done with it and how it could benefit humanity but after thousands of years of elite technology, it is quite obvious that technology has never and will never be used for our benefit.